This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your tablet, smartphone, and desktop. Support the show and get a free audiobook of your choice by visiting audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Follow Standard Orbit, Mr. Chekhov, and take us in. Hi, sir. Is the word of Landru. Joy to you, friends, and thanks for joining us here in Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated show to the original series. My name is Drew, or Landru, and this is my co-host Mike. Hello. And today we're joined by John Tenuto again for the third and final part of our commentary series for Star Trek Into Darkness. Hi guys, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for joining us, we really appreciate it. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to talk about a non-Ricardo Maltabon con for those who who are already spoiled for this movie. Yeah, sorry. Spoilers for Into Darkness if you didn't know who <laughs> the villain was. But hopefully you know by this point. They eventually started putting it in the commercials. Yeah. So, uh, should we just get this thing rolling and Let's and, do it. All right. So, we're starting uh, right after the Paramount logo fades to black, which is about 21 seconds in on the IMAX version of the movie, though this should work with whichever version you choose because um, they're all the same temporally, I guess. <laughs> so uh, if you guys are ready, we will do a countdown and start this up in all right. th- okay. three, two, one, start. Ooh, and the there's sun. the Skydance logo. Skydance, that's the company which is run by uh, the Oracle dude's son. Really? They, yeah, they've been doing some really, really great work funding people who deserve it. And there's the IMAX version of the Bad Robot logo. It's so big. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, I take it you guys saw this this movie in IMAX or not? Drew, I, I, I apparently know you saw it in the middle in... of nowhere. So no, no, no. I went down to. I was in Knoxville, huh? so I went to the Regal uh, in in you know like the big Regal in Knoxville. And from what I can tell, it might have been LIMAX, but it was 3D IMAX, and it was it was an experience. Yeah, that's good. And John, did you see it in IMAX? Uh, yeah, we went, uh, they had that, uh, you know, a couple of nights before the, uh, regular premiere, they did the, uh, IMAX premieres and, uh, uh, went there and it was great cause, uh, some of my students were there too. And so, you know, with my family and some of my students from, uh, you know, either past, uh, classes, uh, sometimes the Star Trek class even were there. So it was kind of a nice, uh, you know, nice knowing about, uh, you know, 15 people in the theater. So that was kind of neat, That's cool. but it was packed, you know, full, you know, it was a full, full house for sure. Yeah, which which theater did you go to? I went to the one in uh, Libertyville. They have oh, okay. IMAX out there. Yeah, ah, yeah. Um, that's where they show. You know, they also did all the when they were doing the TNG theater events and everything. They were always at that uh, that Regal Cinema out there. Yeah, yeah. I miss those. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's no more of those, I suppose. I guess there, there were issue, issues, I guess, with uh, unions and stuff releasing those TV shows as uh, movies. So, 
Yeah, it's very unfortunate. It would have been awesome to see all good things on the big screen, but no. So, okay, so here it is. We're into this uh, opening sequence, which uh, a lot of people have sort of said is similar to an opening sequence from an episode of the original series and that you're just kind of thrust into the action. You don't really know what's going on. It's an away team mission. They're being chased by um, the, uh, the the native alien population uh, who really don't know why <laughs> there's a bunch of <laughs> aliens on their planet. And uh, it's a bit of fun. What do, what do you to guys me, think about this sequence? To me, it reads like a... Uh... James Bond opening like you know here we've got Bond and his well here's Bond and his team or whatever you know doing this awesome mission where I kind of want to know where it started from um, I feel like that would have made a, a good movie I mean sure there'd be a lot of conference rooms like should we do this should we not do this but how do they convince Spock that this was a good idea to begin with because I, I don't see Spock volunteering for this very easily yeah yeah, I always thought that this, uh, in some ways, should have been its own movie, you know, and uh, that, you know, they, they needed to, you know, obviously it would have had to have been expanded and you would have had to care more about the the, the people on the planet and so on. But it would have been, a, you know, this was, this is the kind of dilemma. I know this kind of answers Roberto Orsi had said when they, when they came to write this film, that they were faced with sort of two choices. One was to do a uh, you know, what they wound up doing, which is, you know, there's a villain, a tra- you know, traditional villain, and, and there's the, the villain creates these challenges for the hero, or to create a story that's more in the vein of the original show and less in the vein of the original movies and do it where there is either an, a sub science fiction exploration plot where either, you know, a circumstance or a natural disaster creates the dilemma for the for the crew and you know in some ways they you got both in this film at least this opening is that second option and then they went with the more traditional earth and danger villain you know uh, plot uh it sounds like the next one they're going to maybe give us what this was as a full film i mean they certainly seem to be hinting an awful lot that it's a uh, a lot like the original show and has yeah. that kind of moral dilemma at the center of it which is you know this is a Fat, you know, it's all very fast, but there's there's several really good questions here uh, that would have made an excellent film. Yeah, it's one of those weird things with this sequence because, um, you know, the the first thing that pops to mind obviously is like they're totally violating the Prime Directive. And I mean, I don't know, did you guys see the the little preview that they did, which was attached to uh, the Hobbit? No, no, I didn't. Yes. It, it was it was basically it was for for all the the Hobbit IMAX uh, prints the digital ones not the film ones um, they they had basically it was the the scene the first scene with Khan you know is is how it started you know you saw the uh, the the London opening with the family and and the little girl who was sick and then. Uh, Khan comes in and is like, you know, oh, hey, I can help you out. And then it cuts to the beginning of the movie and basically takes this sequence up until Spock is like, I'm going to sacrifice myself. And he puts his arms out in the air and then it cuts. And then that's it. That's what they showed. And, um, you know, 
for for those six months or whatever, there were a lot of people who were like, what's wrong with these people? What Haven't they heard of the Prime Directive before? This is so not Star Trek, and what's going on? And of course, you know, that's obviously dealt with later on in the movie. But um, seeing it on its own is kind of weird. But, yeah, it's it's a lot more like uh, Drew was saying that James Bond openings of, of the later eras, where the you know, the openings in the originals sometimes didn't have anything to do with the with the movie really. But yeah. then as the as the Bond films got more complex, they they did in, interweave that opening sequence as an important part of the film, and that's that's what this is, right? This is the setup for um, that the, the the dilemma really that Kirk faces later on in the film on a larger scale. Yeah, which I think is really cool. And and they're doing a lot of cool stuff with, with Spock's character as well, you know, and, and sort of setting up that whole thing. And it basically informs the ending of the movie, mm-hmm. which is neat. On the whole... And then, of course... The, oh, sorry, and then this, in this scene right here, you get that last... Uh, the, the very first of the, the Wrath of Khan direct parallels that uh, that the film has with Spock, you know, commenting on the needs of the the needs of the few versus the needs of the, you know, the one and the needs of the many versus the needs of the one. And then, you know, hear him willing to sacrifice himself, which he does at the end of the end of Wrath of Khan. This right here is the last shot of the preview. Um, And then when it cuts away from the volcano is when it cut to black. (laughs) That's kind of awesome. Yeah. And then we had to sit through the Hobbit and that was less than (laughs) But it was high frame rate, so. These were great aliens because they they really are, you know, one of the things that, you know, certainly J.J. Abrams does in these films and then he does, it appears he's going to be doing in the Star Wars film, is really using old-fashioned filming techniques, right? I mean, those trees are real. That wasn't colored later on by a computer. I mean, they're real in the sense that they colored them. They're, you know, they're they're Mm. a physical reality. And, um, you know, it was great to see them use aliens that could have been done, I guess, on the original show had they had a little bit more money, you know, um, because yeah. they're obviously really real people and augmented with, with some of the things that you can do today. But it's a great, you know, you know, to keep Star Trek in a way a little bit low, low, low tech um, when when you can or to, or to film in the old fashioned way really helps to kind of, you know, go back to the original show a little bit in the, in the way that it feels. Mm hmm. And there's so, a propeller sound from the Enterprise for some reason. An airplane <laughs> sound. <laughs> that, that's got to be Ben Burt, right? I mean, that's a great little, you know, Ben Burt thing. <laughs> yeah, that that seems Ben Burt-y. I was going to say how, how different it plays without the sound or the music, but I can still feel it. I can feel the score, you know, when the ship was rising out of the water. Yeah, yeah. I love this little moment with Uhura where she, you know, whips her earpiece across throws the her earpiece down is one of my favorite uhura moments where she sounds like, like she broke something yeah oh, this is so great and this this is great this is great you know this is clever it's uh... like oh they're not gonna remember us <laughs> this is this is really the setup for that piece of the action movie you know we've we keep yeah. on talking about right there so and here we're about to get the new warp effect, which I think is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's like a mix of the the star uh, streaking from Star Wars, but uh, more dirty. I don't know. It's kind of wet when we when we go into it there for the logo. Mm-hmm. 
Well, they put those little things on the frame, too. Why on earth does he have a analog alarm clock? He's retro. It's probably I digital, guess. just with like an analog looking thing. He he is used to time. He's frames, got a retro so dog, the two, you know. Yeah, <laughs> old fashioned dog. Well, you know, and 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 in many ways, the kid's in an old fashioned hospital, right? In a way, you know, I mean, it certainly mm-hmm. has high tech things, but. I, my my understanding is this was the originally going to be the opening scene of the film to to start in a surprising way, kind of like the original 2009 film did, where you had that you know very emotional uh, sequence with beautiful music and really no sound in a way, uh, where you have you know Samuel Kirk sacrificing himself, um, and that this this sort of this would have been an interesting, this would have been interesting had they started a big blockbuster film with this and then went into uh, that, which is how they did it in the IMAX uh, preview, right? Isn't that right? If I remember correctly, yeah. this was first. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I don't know when they changed stuff around, but I mean, that there's part of that which makes sense. Like, I remember when, you know, people were speculating as to what the IMAX preview would be and saying like, oh, well, you know, are, are they going to be on a mission and everything like that? And the thing that I kept on saying, which I was wrong about, was like, there's no way that we're going to see the crew. You know, what we're going to get is an opening like the opening to Dark Knight, where it's going to introduce the villain. And I thought for sure that's what the IMAX preview would be and what the first scene of the movie would be. But uh turned out I was wrong. So... This is the first of the there's there's I mean there's a couple of I guess meta themes or whatever you want to call it that 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 are fun to watch for I'll, I'll I guess I'll, I'll talk about the glass theme that runs through this whole film uh, in in a minute but this one this is the setup right there's so many characters in here who face the dilemma of having a family member either actual or or symbolic in danger and making a choice on how to save them how hmm. best to save them and so you get you get uh, the father here who who ultimately makes the ba- the wrong choice right i mean he but he sacrifices himself for his and kills other people uh for his daughter and then of course khan has that oh and 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 so that's something to watch for that scene i i wanted to comment on this i think this scene was a bit, huge mistake yes. um for many reasons i know it it's it's it it plays into some idea that's out there that Kirk is that way, but really Kirk isn't that way. If if you watch the original show and certainly the films, but even the original show, there's no way Kirk was a Lothario. Um, that, mm-hmm. that is, that's a, that's a very soft callous, I think, reading of that character. Um, he never, he was never a womanizer when you watch that original show, he never did stuff like that oh, in, come that, on. in that way. <laughs> and no, he didn't. And, and I think, and I, and, and here's, here's why I make that argument. Every person that he meets that is a former love of his, whether it's Janet Wallace or Ariel Shaw or Carol Marcus or whoever has profound respect for him. It's, it's never, I hate you except the, you know, the woman, uh, the, uh, you know, in the last episode, who who's who's not mentally stable, but otherwise, there's no there's no former lover he meets who's like you were a jerk. There's no former lover that was like you were sleeping around on me while we were going out. And the mm-hmm. times when he does engage the alien of the week is almost always to save the ship. I'm not saying yes. he didn't enjoy it, but what I'm saying is <laughs> it was never. Hey, there's a girl. I'm going to go up to that girl. Never, never, ever. And I thought that this was a huge mistake that fundamentally misunderstands this character to have him 
not that he was he was sleeping casually with those with with that, but that the whole purpose of those girls in that scene is a sexual purpose. I mean, that's even in many ways magnitudes more objective in a way I, I think than what happens to Carol Marcus later in the film, which everybody kind of focuses on. Those girls serve no purpose but to be a sexual object for him. And yeah, he's got his shirt off, so he's a sexual object too. But it's it's just a bad idea. And you know, the idea that somehow, well, this is this is a different Kirk, right? Because he because he has you know he has a different upbringing. He doesn't have his father, so he doesn't have that guidance. I could buy that if there weren't interviews with J.J. Abrams where he says this Kirk. He says it in fact on a a television interview. He does a late night interview where he says this Kirk grows up to be Shatner Kirk. So 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 even though they they set this whole universe up and it's this alternate universe, the idea is this is supposed to be the Captain Kirk from the original show. I mean, he he said it. It wasn't like a uh, a misunderstanding of what he said, I don't think. And so this presents a problem in that and then if that served a purpose that scene. I guess if that scene was showing he was cocky or he was arrogant or something like that and that that's part of that that to get him to grow as a character but it serves no function for him as a character except to diminish Kirk I think which they do again later on where they throw out the stuff about Chapel and how he treats her and how he treated that girl in the first film who was you know the 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 Orion and he sort of used her and I think they really don't understand this character in the in his relationships with women at all and and if this is meant to be the Captain Kirk that J.J. Abrams says this is supposed to be. So, uh, you know, that, that, that scene, as you can tell by my reaction here, really bothered me, <laughs> you know, as, a, as really not understanding who the heart of this character was in a way that they understand, I think, all the other characters really well. Um, and and I, I don't think that can be explained away as he had the biggest change in his life uh, because he lost his parents, because that is not how that has been presented um, it may be that's how it's presented by the writers, but it is not how it was presented by J.J. Abrams, I don't think. I'm, I'm a big well, fan of fed e- fan edits. And um, so I, I look at a lot of movies and I see things that could be cut out to make a better movie. And like the two scenes that I really have a problem with in this movie, you could easily remove them and not miss anything. So like you could remove that scene of him getting the phone call and immediately cut to the scene of them walking around and saying, I got a call. You know, there's no, there's no reason for that scene to be there. Right. And at least in the first film, I know it was a deleted scene, but at least in the first film, the script does have him going and trying to apologize for using, for using, you know, his girlfriend for, for the, for the Kobayashi Maru. In, In this one, it just, they never, that never pays off. It's never like, you know, gosh, you just, you know, you, you, you know, you, 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 you take too many risks or you're too arrogant or you're too, you know, and it's just, you know, give the, give the girls in that sequence a name, give them an identity, show them that they're a person, uh, you know, or something to make that scene a little more, um, uh, you know, uh, where they're human, where they're, I want to say humans, they're not, but you know what I mean, that they have a humanity to them, um, that they have a peoplehood, but they have no, they, they serve no purpose. They're there to, to only as a pleasure mechanism for him. Um, and I think that's where the, if I'm not mistaken, the flags are upside down. <laughs> Those British flags are upside down. 
I mean, I to to me, there's two things there. First off, I I do not agree with the assessment that uh, Kirk never did stuff like this on the original series. I I seem to remember numerous occasions where he was acting rather inappropriately towards women. I mean, Mirror Mirror comes to mind, where you know after uh, after going through that whole ordeal, he sees the mirror counterpart of uh, uh, what's her name, um, the. Uh, the captain's, uh, yeah. you know, mistress or whatever. Barbara Luna's character, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, oh, oh, look at her. And then he, you know, even though he's her boss, you know, he goes over and starts, you know, hitting on her. Like, that's how the episode <laughs> ends. You know, I mean, there's stuff like that. But then also, I mean, even if he does become the character, which, uh, you know, we see in the original series, which I... I know that he's the guy who made the movie, but I don't necessarily agree with that assessment um, by J.J. Abrams. We're still seeing proto-Kirk, you know? I mean, we're still seeing him. I mean, he from that scene, we immediately go to a scene where he's being demoted because he's not acting like the Kirk that we see in the original series. He's acting irrational, and, and he doesn't know how to command people. And, and to see, you know, those two scenes, you know, right up against each other, to me, is commenting on the same thing. He's not the Kirk that we know from the original series, and maybe he will become the Kirk that we know from the original series. But right now, he's young and stupid, you know? I, I, would, agree with, I would agree with that, and I would think that would be a good way to take this character um, if we didn't have those commentaries from the people making the film, right? So, but, but that doesn't mean our interpretations or your interpretation or my interpretation is any less valid than theirs, right? Our interpretation is as valid as the people who make the film. So right. but, well, what I'm saying but, is, he... but, 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 but he uses the phrase, I mean, they use the phrase that he is a Lothario. So they don't, they don't, you know, to say that Kirk goes over and he likes women, that's fine. Um, should he be, should he have gone out with uh with uh, Noel, and should he have, you know, hit on, uh, uh, you know, Barbara Luna's character? No, perhaps as a captain, right? You shouldn't be doing that. But it was never disrespectful. It was never, it was never in the way that he is towards women in this film. It's never. It, it was he, he went over to talk to her. We never saw what he did. He didn't go over and say, "Hey, I'm," you know. It was. I mean, we don't we don't see that. I. I can't remember an instance, I could be wrong, certainly, but I cannot remember an instance where I felt external to 1960s views on women, right? I mean, we have to put it in the context of the era it was created. And the 1960s view of men and women, um, Kirk never acted disrespectfully towards women. And in fact, I think the recurring theme of his past loves is that all of them had a respect for him and that he had a respect for them. He was never a jerk towards women. And I think that, and that was true. I mean, Carol and him were when he was young, right? If we, if we, if we buy any retro conning that, uh, that uh, Gary Mitchell introduced her, that she's a blonde lab technician that he refers to in the first episode. And he, and he knows Carol Marcus for many. Obviously, he knows her for at least 30 years, right, in Wrath of Khan because they have a child that age. Uh, you know, so um, he was a young man when they were together, and he w obviously was not a jerk to her. So I think that I, I, I think it was. I think the reality was thrown in there because they thought it was cute, 
And I think it was thrown in there because they thought he's a Lothario. And I think both of those are are wrong. It's not cute. It's not a cute scene. It's it's a misogynistic scene, I think, because the the women serve no purpose. If they talked, uh, other than hey, come back to bed or whatever it is, then then I w- might have a different feeling about that sequence. Um, they're there because they're they're girls in bed with him with tails, you know, and then that's why they're there. And and I also think it's because they misunderstand Kirk. They misunderstand Captain Kirk from the original show. Not that they misunderstand their Captain Kirk, but that they misunderstand Captain Kirk from the original show. Now, I could be wrong, of course. It's just my interpretation of the of that. But uh, um, I think that, that comes from what they comment on, and also I think just thinking about the original show. But that doesn't mean that Mike is Mike is wrong. Of course, I could be wrong. I could be going into darkness. <laughs> Uh, and if I could say something really, really fast too, we had two of those glass sequences already. We're going to have another one coming up here. You know, obviously in Star Trek Two, you had the you know glasses that 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 McCoy uh, gives to Kirk as a gift, and then it, it resonates at the end when they're broken and he can't read the information that, from Spock, right? Because Spock is dead, and the the wonderful motif of glass in the first glasses in the first film. Uh, I'm sorry, in the first, in, in Star Trek Two. And then, um, you know, of course, Kirk and Spock with glass uh, at, in, in, in the death sequence in, in Wrath of Khan, where they're separated by glass. So glass is this huge theme in this film. It, it's constant throughout the movie. The first example is the father dropping his ring into the glass that blows up the building. The, the second is they cut to Kirk dropping the ice cube um, into the glass. And if you did watch that scene real carefully, when he lifts up his drink the second time after he pours some more the, the the liquid is not right he pours it it's full he lifts it up it's it's small little error there uh, continuity error but um of course this is in the godfather three scene here um is uh also glass is a big part of this sequence um here as well with with uh with kirk navigating the glass you know the glass windows uh in order to get to Khan and the two of them with glass there and they're always separated by glass in the, in the film, you know, there's, they're separated by glass when cons in the brig, they're separated by glass when they're in the, the, um, uh, space suits and so on. So the, the theme of glass kind of keeps coming up, I think through the film. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but, uh, it's kind of a neat idea. Yeah. So the sequence, um, is an interesting one. I think that it's a, it's well done, but it also breaks the rules of the IMAX format on numerous occasions, <laughs> which annoys the crap out of me. I found um, a couple other ones too. Yeah, there are a few other things here and there, but if if you didn't um, hear our aspect ratio uh, commentary or podcast, Mike pointed out that almost every scene that's outside, that's not in a building or on a starship, is IMAX. But there are a couple scenes like uh, Mickey when he was talking to Khan in the beginning, I noticed weren't IMAX. And there are some shots in here that aren't IMAX, even though the camera is outside. Yeah. <clears throat> it's annoying, but whatever. You think you'd turn off the lights if you were going to sneak down and shoot people? <laughs> well, you know, he's about to shoot him. I mean. Yeah, there's. There's a lot of glass. <laughs> <laughs> There's glass all over the place. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is intentional. You know, I mean, I I, I always felt the apple. You know, in in the first film when 
he's doing the Kobayashi Maru, you know, was was deliberate, right? And and, and referencing Ratha Khan with the apple and Kirk bites the uh, fruit, you know, and says, I don't like to lose, you know. Um, so I don't know how much of that is, is, is you know, deliberate or, you know. Um, one of the stuntmen, uh, they just had an article on uh, Star StarTrek.com. Uh, his name was, uh, I think it's pronounced, uh, uh, Koski, Kim Koski, Kim Robert Koski, um, who did some of the wonderful stunts in the sequence and had been, done stunts in numerous Star Trek films. Unfortunately, he uh, just passed away a few days ago, I think a motorcycle, like motorcycle accident, uh, not film related. And, mm. uh, you know, he left, he's only 50 years old. He left behind a family and, um, you know, it's difficult now is it's reading that article and thinking about him and not, you know, and watching the sequence and here he, he, he's part of this team of great stunt people who did a really great job in the scene. It's a very exciting, emotional, the acting tears is, is wonderful, you know, um, and the stunts are pretty, pretty amazing here. So it's a sad, another sad loss, you know, for, for the, for, you know, for, for cinema. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the glass in this scene is really what sort of, uh, <laughs> caused some confusion on the filmmaker's part in terms of what should be an IMAX and what's not, because there's a lot of looking at people from the other side of the glass where we're looking like in onto a, interior like right there that should be an imax that should be imax theoretically that should not which is good but it's like you're showing an interior so you're going to keep the the shots of interiors (laughs) in anamorphic or are you going to keep the shots in interiors anamorphic Now, now this doesn't seem right to me he's being a bit of a a creeper here i guess yeah He's like, I want to feel what it's like to die, you know. So, is this cool? Is this cool? Can I do this? <laughs> I, I kind of, I always thought, you know, until they have that conversation at the end, uh, well, well, in the in the Star Wars Millennium Falcon scene, where he talks about, you know, feeling his death. I had originally thought until that point that what he was doing was trying to help ease. This is this is what uh, I thought too. Yeah, ease his pain, and then now now maybe that's what he was doing, and then a byproduct of that is. I, and that's what I prefer to believe, because otherwise it's that's just so right. It's, it's illegal, probably on fifty planets. Um, you know that that you know that he's easing his pain, and and somehow in that tra- there's a transfer of consciousness. You know. Um, yeah, but I, here's I another I, theme. I, I'm sorry. There's another theme here that runs through the film, right? Which is the Kirk's uh, Kirk not having that father in the first film. Right. There's there, there's a theme of fatherhood throughout the film. There's the father of the little girl. Pike is Kirk's father, symbolically. Um, and then Marcus starts calling him son, you know, son, son, which is sort of like you, you, you could become my son if you were to follow my ways, you know. Um, uh, but of course, he's not going to because that's your that's your Darth Vader dad. Right. And that, that, <laughs> this is your Obi-Wan Kenobi dad here, you know. And um uh, you know, of course, Khan is symbolically the father of his of his people. So you you get that theme of the fatherhood, Carol and her father, um, and that that theme of fatherhood runs through here. And of course, Kirk, the loss of the father here, then does I guess bring him as Mike was saying. You know, maybe that's one of the moments where he moves from that selfish kind of kid Kirk, if we if we accept that, which you know I think is the intention, right, of of the writers anyway. Um, 
uh, to the Kirk that's a little more like the Kirk that we know, uh, maturity, you know, maturing him. Yeah, I mean, this movie is still all about Kirk's um, growth as a character, which is weird because, I mean, I, I, I talked about this somewhere else, I forget where, but, you know, this and Skyfall and there's a few other movies, you know, like reboots, which do this, where it's like, we have the first movie, which is setting up uh, these characters, you know, Batman Begins, you know, in a sense, and... and and this one, you know, Star Trek 09 and everything. And it's like, it's going through and it's like intentionally avoiding like um, uh, trademarks of that franchise, which we know. Like, for example, Casino Royale did it and then Star Trek 09, you know, kind of stole the idea of not using the theme until the end. And then in the end, it's like, okay, these people have now gone through their journey to get to the place where we're at when what we know and love started. So they've earned their theme song in a sense, you know, and uh, that's really cool and everything. And then the sequel comes out or in the case of Skyfall, they waited a movie and then did it, you know, third time out where it's like, and now we're going to set up how these people became the people that we, no, and love from that. And it's like, wait a minute, you, didn't you just do that in the last movie? Didn't we watch a whole movie where that's like what the point was? So why are we doing it again? You know, and now they're saying for this movie, like, oh, and now they'll be at the place where we know them from the original series. Uh, and really fast, that was the NX, the NX-01 was there for yeah. fans of Enterprise there. It was one of the ships, but I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, that's okay. Yeah. I was going to do it. <laughs> I think, you know, I, th I think he, I think I, I, this is, I don't know, but, um, you know, there was so much criticism that the filmmakers got for the first film that he was captain by accident and that he hadn't earned that. And I wonder if there was some degree of, well, let's revisit that. Uh, let's agree with the audience at the start of this film and then take him through the process that he actually gets to earn this, which is, which is good. But I think that's part, there's the two, you know, I really like this film. Don't, don't get me wrong. I seem really critical of it, but I like it, but it's, but there's two things that I think are fundamentally wrong with it. One is that con secret was completely unnecessary to the film. I think they've admitted that that was, was, you know, a, 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 a questionable decision in some regards. Um, and that, and that it, it, you know, that was a secret that was that wasn't a good secret to begin with, because I think most people suspect it anyway. And it wasn't a good secret because, you know, it, 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 it admires the movie down in unnecessary things. And I think that that also occurs when you have, um, um, you know, this 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 Kirk has to be demoted and but he's back to captain 10 minutes later. You know, mm -hmm. it's this kind of weird uh, uh, arc. And I think it's too much answering to the fans uh, in a way. And, and I can understand the desire to do that. Um, but when you're only going to get what, I mean, what, if we're lucky, what are we going to get? I mean, I, my, in my dreams, we might get six of these movies, you know? Um, it's not like the TV show though, where you really need to set these characters up, um, for, for, for something, by the way, if you look right, there's a pinky ring on, look on McCoy, there's a pinky <laughs> ring there. That yeah. is uh, that, now. Watch again. It, it's oh, gone. Oh, it's gone. Uh, okay, yeah, now it'll come back. It'll come back. It's gone. <laughs> it's so, probably gone there, though you can't really tell. It was there. And then you cut back, and there it is. Uh, you'll see it again. There it is again. 
So um, little mistake. But the pinky ring is an homage to DeForest Kelly, who wore a pinky ring through all of Star Trek, um, all the movies and everything. It was his um, it was the the ring was his uncle's that he got in World War One. And he had given his uncle had given it to DeForest Kelly's mother, um, uh, Clara. And, and when she died, that was the only thing he wanted was the ring. And so Roddenberry had told him, you can't wear that when he cast him for Star Trek. And he said, look, if you get me, you get the ring. Uh, and he explained to him, you know, so what he did was he would turn the ring inward because it had a blue, really bright blue, beautiful gem on it. And uh, so that you couldn't see it, it wasn't as ostentatious, you know, uh, distracting. Uh, but you do see it quite a bit. You see it in Star Trek II. Uh, you see it in uh, in uh, City on the Edge of Forever when he's kind of checking the guy's head out, you know, when he comes to Earth and he's 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 still on his uh, he's still high from the drug that he took uh, by accident. And um, you see it quite a bit in there. So I love that they that little detail that shows I think a you know a fundamental respect that uh, that they do have for these characters. You know that that the writers do have and that. Uh, um, you know, there are many times when you can close your eyes and you can hear uh, DeForest Kelly or, or Leonard Nimoy saying these lines, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. because they are the lines that they say, but other times just because it sounds like them. And they really, you know, as much as I don't think they understand Kirk, um, I think they understand all the other characters and have, and have made some of the ancillary characters even much more interesting, like Uhura, who, you know, in Star Trek VI can't speak, speak Klingon off the top of her head, but in here, as the linguistic expert that she is, is able to, to do it and, and in a way, you know, help save the day. Speaking of characters which may or may not be similar to their um, prime universe counterparts, here we have Scotty. Um, <laughs> I, I think that in terms of the spirit of the character, he's very similar, but uh, the way that he's presented is substantially different. Um, but I like it. I think it's good. Yeah, because they kept the heart of him, you know, the heart of who he was. And I think they made him, a little, you know, maybe more, you know, I guess an example of how an actor helps to shape a character, right? A little more humorous. But I found this scene to be very kind of original series appropriate. You know, there were times when, when, when Scotty got to talk to Kirk um, in a way that maybe other characters could not have because the enterprise was really his, you know, um, and, and uh, his ship and Kirk just <laughs> sort of borrowed it, you know, and of course Kirk didn't <laughs> feel that way, you know, uh, for Kirk, it was his, his whole life. So I, 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 I thought this was kind of reminiscent of, you know, and when he calls him Jim, I love that because to me, that's one of the greatest moments that James Dewan had in the original series is when Scotty calls Kirk Jim. Um, cause he's just not going to accept that Kirk's staying behind. He, he should stay behind, you know, Kirk needs to be saved. And, and when he uses the name Jim there, I, I always love that, you know, and I, and I loved it here. I, I thought it was a great moment. Yeah. Uh, Carol, Carol Marcus, of course, is introduced in that scene as our torpedoes. So you get another, there's two more Rathacon uh, moments, you know, it's, it's Spock who winds up in the torpedo at the end of uh, Wrath of Khan, but Khan who winds up in the torpedo at the end of this film. But, uh, um, you know, when she introduces herself, she introduces herself as Carol Wallace. And that's an homage to the, uh, you know, one, one of the things, too, if you watch this and know the drafts of the scripts, if you know that this film isn't 
isn't a copy of Wrath of Khan really till the end, you know, when they, when, when they have the Kirk Spock moment. Um, there's hints of it. There's there's homages through it, but it's different, you know, uh, and it's not really space seed, you know, because you don't you don't see the discovery of the ship. And and that. but there are moments in here where there, where it is like space. Seed. But what it's really like is, is like the drafts of the original versions of those. So so this is actually a lot like Carrie Wilbur's original draft of space seed without being a ripoff or anything like that. But it's it, there, a lot of that was spent with Khan in the brig. And Kirk and Khan talking to each other, and Khan getting out of the bridge, and Khan killing somebody. I mean, there's a there's 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 overlays to that. They may not have even seen those original drafts. I don't know, but it's it's certainly inherent to the to to this. And then uh, she's named Wallace because the original uh, character in the very first versions of the Wrath of Khan script was not Carol Marcus. They were going to bring back uh, the character of Janet Wallace from the Deadly Years. And it was going to be her who was Carol Marcus's character, and her, she would have a son named David Wallace. And um, so I love that the, the nice little homage to uh, an original draft version of uh, of the Wrath of Conscript. There didn't they also call John Harrison John Erickson while they were filming? Yeah, what, the original, the you know, the original, the name of Khan is an interesting you know story in and of itself, but the to. And we talked about that, I think, at length previously. But the, the you know, basically, the character starts out as a guy named Harold Erickson, who is more of a Nordic, almost Aryan uh, figure, um, not genetically enhanced initially. That's something that'll be added later by by Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry. Um, but uh, you know, he's he's but he is he's more savage, so therefore he's more physically capable in a way that's kind of was sort of the idea instead of genetics initially but he was originally a guy named harold erickson and again spends most of his time in the brig kind of talking to captain kirk through the glass you know in that in that original version of space seed then he becomes um john erickson um then he becomes john uh then he becomes ragnar thorwald uh, which is the name all the way until the casting of ricardo montalban and it's with montalban's casting that um, Roddenberry changes the character to Khan, um, making him a little more, a little closer um, uh, to what Montalban might be able to play ethnically. It wasn't ethnically consistent with who Montalban was, but um, uh, you know. So, uh, but it, it is it, it that is the name John Harrison um, is actually in the scripts in the original scripts. So. Um, uh, or I'm sorry, John Erickson is in the original scripts, not John Harrison. And so they named, I think they realized that somebody may find that out and put two and two together. Uh, and and that may be why they eventually change it. If you watch the deleted scenes that come with the compendium version of this, when the father, in the deleted scene, when the father is speaking to Marcus and explaining what he did, he says the name John Erickson. So they're always saying Erickson in the film as you watch it, but they dubbed over Harrison. And there are a few times where you can really see that that doesn't match the, you know. So they filmed it. This was filmed as John Erickson, which is one of the names from the original scripts. That's actually my favorite, my favorite page of any of the uh, drafts that 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 we were able to look at is one where the, all three names appear on that page. So it's it's Harold Erickson scratched out, John Erickson scratched out, Ragnar Thorwald, and then Khan, 
Uh, so you actually get all four names on that page. It's, it's really great. It shows you that the struggle they had uh, kind of pinning down uh, who Khan was. But knowing really and, and looking at Gene Kuhn's original memos, knowing that Khan was and could be, uh, even when he was Harold Erickson, a really great a match for Kirk, that it is Kirk, um, you know, Kirk's equal, Kirk's Joker, Kirk's Lex Luthor, whatever you wanted to call it, um, that he, he that Kirk and him were two two sides of the same coin as I think the way that they said that. Now, now Spock's confronting Carol here. Why did he bother to check up on on her? It's not like she was acting very suspicious or anything. No, but he knew that there was something up because she shows up and she's like, "I'm here to do this job." And he's like, "Well, that's my job. So why are you here then?" And Kirk's just like, "Oh, the more the merrier." So he, I think he was suspicious of her to begin with because it didn't make sense that she would be assigned to the ship. And that's why he checked up on her. I like that Chekhov has to use the uh, communicators, even though he's in engineering. Yeah. You know, they're not just yelling at the ceiling or they're yelling at their chest. You know, they, they have to use communicators even when they're in the ship. Uh, yeah, in you, other think, sections, you think they'd have, good. like, something that, like, Uhura has, you know? Give them a little Bluetooth headset to... <laughs> but. I always wondered on Next Gen how the computer knew when the conversation was over because there were times when they would say things after because they didn't always. I can't go believe back you fell for there. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like they, they they wouldn't always press their their. You know, you could understand open it by pressing your icon, close it by pressing your icon, but they didn't always do that. And somehow the computer really understood when it was time to be. You know, it had a privacy control, I guess. I guess. <laughs> there's that shot which is uh setting up the new series no oh, sulu sulu's expression when he says you get command yeah this is another great scene where you get mccoy really as mccoy right all these metaphors and, and uh, <laughs> this, metaphors. This, that could have easily been william shatner and deforest kelly it was a great a great sequence you know I can't remember where I heard this, but, you know, he he talked about how, I guess there were a bunch of metaphors, you know, in that scene, and, and it was uh, Carl Urban who went to J.J. and was like, there's, I, I, you know, what's with all the metaphors? I mean, I understand that's his thing, but come on, guys, we're overdoing this. Can we rewrite this? And instead of taking out metaphors like Urban was trying to angle for they just added that line at the end where kirk is like enough with the metaphors <laughs> that was their their workaround or their acknowledgement this was a neat little sequence here that reference to mud ship you know to reference the comic book yeah yeah a couple times they do that right where they talk about the b delivering the the gorn baby and, and mccoy mentions that and uh doing a c-section i think he says uh, on a gorn baby and that they bite and that was a reference to the video game and you know, Does those that are nice little, little nods. No, it doesn't happen in the video game. It doesn't Gorn happen. try to eat them over and over, and McCoy doesn't even meet them. So oh, okay. it upset me when I saw it, because I'd right. played the game, and I'm just like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to play that game. No, you don't. It's okay. <sighs> the completest in me needs to play the game. I like uh, Sulu's threatening speech. This is great. Use those torpedoes there. 
This this sequence is actually kind of reminiscent of uh, the sequence in Star Trek Two, where they're getting ready for the battle. Yeah, and this, of course, around. a Hinset, Hinset, you know, Hinset Six a little bit, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or Five. In fact, I always thought that the the, the, the constant shooting from it, it just I it's, I seem to recall in Six that they're seeing seeing Sulu from behind the chair, and they do that a couple of times there. Um, this was a night. This was a good moment. This was good, but this is Star Wars, right? I mean, this really feels like. The, the the conversation with Spock and Uhura is Star Trek, but then it switches into kind of Star Trek mode. And again, it shows you, you know, that sort of bantering, um, you know, what was a part of the original show, you know, between between Kirk and Spock, there would be bantering during action sequences uh, like Errand of Mercy and so on. So it kind of harkens back to the original um Star Trek as well, but, you know, certainly has a, a Millennium Falcon vibe, you know, as they're going through this scene. Do, do you feel that uh, that these new movies are trying to make this the Trinity? Because uh, there are times oh, yeah, where, I mean, I mean Uhura yeah, is yeah. used more than McCoy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, there's the nothing wrong show, with that. No, no. And it's okay to, it's okay to, you know, because, because, as long as you get the McCoy, Kirk, and Spock moments, I don't think you're denied those. And there are some films, you know, Star Trek VI, they're not together. The, tr- the three of them are not together much, you know. Um, and, and really, if you look at the way the films are, are the Star Trek films are set up, some of them, they're together uh, quite a bit. But, you know, even Star Trek IV, you know, McCoy, it's Kirk and Spock with themselves, you know. And then, so... But if you get those moments, if the important moments are Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, um, and, and you know, like they're like they're like at the end of the film, there's the three of them together. I, I think that's okay, and it's okay to bump up the other characters to have more important roles because, you know, I think they deserved it. You know, they're interesting characters, and Uhura. You know, there there was a there was I think some conversation about whether. Uhura should have had to ask to go to let her, she sort of has to ask to, to use her abilities here. You know, she's sort of like, let me use, you know, let me do this and that, that sort of thing. And that some, there were, there was, I think a a segment of fans who felt that that was also another kind of gender problem within the story where the other characters just act, you know, that, uh, but, you know, I think on a mission, you you may ask your captain if you can do something as radical as what she's going to plan to do. But, right. you know, uh, the other thing I know is that during the, the, the original version of the Klingon sequence here, that Cupcake, um, who's finally given a proper name in the comics and then carried over into the film here, Hendorf, I think, um, was supposed to be was was supposed to die in the sequence. Um, and I it isn't clear whether he does or doesn't. I don't think we see him the rest of the film, but no. there isn't a death a death scene for him either. I don't believe so. He can be Cupcake can be in the next movie again, you know, uh, which would be kind of neat. He could be the wedge of you know, <laughs> the wedge <laughs> of a Star Trek film. I like that. I, I, I'm all for that. This is a great example too of the wonderful music. I think. Uh, you know, the music for both of the, these films have been marvelous and continue the 
the trend of, you know, there's never been a bad Star Trek soundtrack uh, ever. Uh, although some people don't like four, but, you know, four fit what four They're was, wrong. right? I mean, I think it, you know, but um, uh, this certainly was, uh, was a wonderful soundtrack and this reimagining of the Klingon theme, uh, you know, is one of the highlights, I think, uh, really kind of clever. And I guess they're shouting Klingon uh, insults at you in the song. <laughs> they're probably saying where is michael dorn why, why is he? <laughs> yeah this is who supposedly was offered a role he was supposedly offered a role in here and, and that'd be a little much like well i guess you could have him as one of the klingons of background klingons or something i suppose you know without focusing on him yeah he they were just at a convention this weekend where apparently they asked the TNG crew if they would be willing to come back for uh, Star Trek 13 and basically all of them said no except for <laughs> Marina Sirtis who said she wants to play Chapel but <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be interesting well I wouldn't be surprised right I mean I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they had cameos from to, to as some acknowledgement you know uh I, I don't know. Film, obviously, I, you know, they can't be, they could be distracting, yeah. I think. And so, it, it, you know, it would have to be, it would have to be like almost like a what you leave behind sort of cameo where it's like a bar scene and they're all in the bar. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't yeah. really notice, you know. Uh, and, you know, but what would be the point of that, right? I mean, I wouldn't want Patrick Stewart sitting in a bar and you don't know that it's him, you know. Um, uh, or something like that, you know, it's, uh, but I guess they, if they got, you know, they could, they could use other, other characters, I suppose. But, uh, you know, if they put Kirk, if, if they do have Shatner and Nimoy in the next film, as, as supposedly is they're working to see if they can do, um, you know, that might be enough, you know, to, 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 as an homage, you know, sure. Cause you also don't want the film, the film to just be, you know, a, a, you know, a 50th anniversary celebration. It needs to stand on its own as a film. Yeah. A lot of people gave Skyfall crap for trying to find that balance. So. Really? They did? Because I was going to, I was just about to say, like, you want Skyfall, not Die Another Day. Right. Well, yeah. You don't want Die Another Day. I'll <laughs> tell you that I like much, Die Another but... Day. <laughs> you know, but whatever. But yeah. You I know, know people who complain about Skyfall, but these are the same people who complain about everything. So. Yeah. I was going to say, anyone who's complaining about Skyfall. They've got some issues. So here we finally get to see the Klingons, the newly designed Klingons with their newly designed foreheads. It's yeah, interesting. It's got like look. Cool, cool forehead rings. Yeah. Just kind of cool. Hmm. I mean, this is, there seems like there needs to be some acknowledgement of this in the next film. I mean, this is a big deal. Like, I'm not at all convinced what, that, that Starfleet is in the is in the the right here. You know, you know what I mean. I mean, but it's not it's not any better like than shooting missiles at them. I mean, that would be uh, a hell of a lot worse than right. this undercover mission that Kirk makes. I I, I agree. <laughs> you know, but still, I mean, they are killing they they are killing Klingons who you know are just there to be like, hey, and sure, the Klingons were going to kill them, but, you know, when you go to Kronos, you got to kind of expect that, right? 
<laughs> well, this is one of the, you know, the, there's been criticism of the film from, from lots of sources, including d- directors of previous films, uh, from directors of previous Star Trek <laughs> films. And it's, and it's uh, you know, uh, certainly there's a trend, I think, in entertainment today. I, you see it on a lot of shows. I, I think Arrow is a good example of it, where there's a sort of postmodern filmmaking style where, and, and television writing style, where it's sort of like, you know, there there are sequences, and then they wrap a story around those sequences. And it's really about the sequences. You know, it's about the, wouldn't it be cool if, or we want to have a scene where, as opposed to a story necessarily being, you know, organic in a way. And, you know, again, I there I, I think in many ways this film goes above and beyond the first film on several levels. It's a much bigger film. Uh, it, 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 and it, and it has a message I think that is important about how do we as a people deal with threats to us and, and actual acts of terrorism against us. How, and how do we do that and not lose who we are as a people? I mean, I, I can't imagine a more important theme than that. If we're going to deal with a big macro level social issue, you know, um, how do you treat people who wrong you and, 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 and so on. And so, um, you know, that isn't to say this is at all vacuous or anything like that. And I think there's tons of themes and sub-themes throughout this film. Like I said, the father sub-theme and the growth of Kirk and, and so on. But I, I, I do think it, you can lodge a criticism that this is an example of postmodern filmmaking where it's just here's an action sequence, then we have story, then there's an action sequence, then we have story. Now, what makes it better than other films is a lot of times they just have the action sequences. And there are no, there is no character you know, uh, within there, where there is character here and there there is drama here and, and you know, personal conflict and so on. But at the same time, you wonder, you know, was this Klingon scene? This is just another example. Here's a here's something that has huge implications and frankly, you know, is questionable in terms of whether or not they should be doing this. Is this how you react? You know, as a Starfleet officer, is this how you is this this is the humanitarian people that were. You know, these aren't villains. They aren't the bad guys of the film. They're people protecting their home. Just like at the end when Spock is running through the streets and beating up Khan, is that Spock? You know, or was it just like, hey, it would be cool if we had a genetic Superman go against somebody who's super strong um, like like Spock? And so, you you know, how much of this is inherent to the story and how much of it is set pieces, I think is something you can raise about a lot of drama i mean when you watch a show like arrow i think it's really prominent so much so that it's distracting and hurts the show um but but here it it, it works well enough that you can survive the postmodern sort of style of filmmaking i think there's no through line you know it's like go over here do this come over here do that now we need to board their ship to come back to the ship right so we go to we go to the other ship to come back to the enterprise anyway i mean you know i i don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying in general but i think here you know it's sort of a case of both things it's like yeah do they want to have that sequence and do they maybe write around it yeah but i mean that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not well integrated into the story and you know even though like i agree with you that you know this is something which isn't very starfleet and this isn't something which they should necessarily be doing I think there's an acknowledgement of that. And, you know, I guess what the the point that I was trying to make was like in the next movie, you would think that that is something that they would deal with. 
you know, whereas j- just like kind of what we were talking about with that opening sequence and how everyone was like, hey, guys, what about the prime directive? And then, you know, six months later, we found out that, you know, we had Pike on screen saying, hey, guys, what about the prime directive? You know, like, I, I, I mean, even even Marcus, you know, says that uh, later on in the movie, he's like, you guys went to Kronos and killed a bunch of people. We're going to war. You know, this is going to happen. And, you know, I think that's something that, that would be really interesting to deal with in the next movie or, or somewhere else down, down oh, the road. Sure, sure, you know? yeah. I mean, I think the comics the comics try to deal with that a little bit, but, you know, comics are comics. It would be more interesting to have a, a, a you know, a, a visual uh, uh, consequence, right? But, uh, but I think the next film is several years, right? they said several years down the pike, so... Down, not the Captain Pike. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, several years down the Pike, so I, I have a feeling they're going to move past that. But I would like to see that covered somewhere. It would be great for a book, for sure. Um, you know, because I don't think the Klingons are just going to be like, oh, okay, well. Right. It feels like it needs to be dealt with somewhere. But here's the gla- Here's another glass sequence. You know, uh, where you have the glass, and then, and of course, uh, raising an issue here of of if Khan's blood is, you know, capable of saving people, why doesn't Ricardo Montalban's Khan use that to save his wife? And, you know, if this is genetically a part of the character and Khan would know this, obviously, um, unless for some reason this Khan knows it and the other Khan didn't because of their hmm. different experiences. Um, yeah, that could be because, Maybe maybe Marcus told him, you know, maybe gave him access to the ability to understand his genetic code in a way they weren't capable in 1996 or something like that, or, right. or just Khan discovered it somehow, you know. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility, you know, that the technology in, in the 90s wasn't as advanced as it was in the 23rd century. But a, another possibility is just that, you know, I mean, you see him you know, in the beginning of this movie and he's like, you know, mixing stuff and measuring things out and everything like that. It's quite possible that, you know, on SETI Alpha 5, he didn't have the equipment to do it, you know? Yeah, it could be that it's not just a direct blood transfer, but that there's something has to be done or, you know. What did you guys think of, uh, I was curious about this uh, from, from, fellow Star Trek fans and, and experts like yourselves is what, what did you think of uh, the casting of Cumberbatch as uh, for, you know, I, I certainly acknowledging that he's a wonderful actor, but what did you think of the casting of, you know, basically a British, you know, <laughs> con as opposed to either uh, an ethnically consistent with the character or ethnically consistent with Montalban, at least. What what did you guys think about that? Well, I had, uh, I think it caused unnecessary uh, criticism. Uh, same with the keeping Khan a secret kind of thing. Um, we all know it's going to be Khan. It doesn't matter who you cast. We know it's going to be Khan. You can tell us it's not. We're still not going to believe you. Uh, I felt like, I love Cumberbatch, and I think he did very well here, but I feel like, it was unnecessary to it it just caused unnecessary friction between fan fandom in that well why is he white now no we're whitewashing all these roles and stuff when the original uh wasn't Benicio del Toro 
or or somebody yeah. rumored to be the yeah, role. Yeah, very, very, yeah. That about, would have been incredible, before, so. and it would have fit in perfectly. Yeah, I, I'm I'm kind of in, in agreement with that. You know, it's uh, it's one of those things where maybe maybe Cumberbatch was the best actor for the job, right? But sometimes there's things which are more important than that. And, uh, you know, casting someone else uh, is, for one thing, more appropriate to the character, but also, you know, more in keeping with, you know, sort of the progressive nature of Star Trek and, and you know, not whitewashing things and, and, and that. I mean, it's not like they couldn't have found, you know, a good actor. Um, I mean, it, it, he, I don't know, the guy who I always kept on thinking of who who has a, a a prior relationship with JJ who seems like he would just be amazing in this role is Naveen Andrews from uh, Lost. Hmm. Yeah. I mean he would be badass as Khan. I mean I can totally see him in this movie, you know? That would have been like perfect casting, you know? I don't know. That's that's who I would have gone with. But I mean, Cumberbatch is obviously awesome in this movie. I do think that it's weird. I know in the comic books they explained how he turned white, but that's just really weird that he needed mm-hmm. an explanation. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's also one of the problems, you know, that they run into uh, with this being a soft reboot or whatever, you know. It's like they can't do, in a lot of ways, it would have been better if they had just straight up rebooted this series because then you wouldn't run into all these problems and you can say, well, why is Khan, you know, a different ethnicity here? And it's like, well, because whatever, he's a different character. Just like you could make, you know, um, Bones a woman and no one would say anything because whatever, why not, you know? And that that's a problem that it, it i mean it is i i do not envy their their jobs with this thing because you're trying to change things and update them and make them relevant to today not that making a guy white is relevant to today but um you know at the same time you're you need to fit everything into this pre-existing box and that's that's really really hard i imagine you know yeah, I mean it's uh, it's you know certainly clever the way that they you know let's let's create the universe that's similar but but it can have different outcomes you know yeah you know I mean if, if, if there, there's several different arguments right I mean uh, the John Cho I don't believe is the same ethnicity as George Takei no um, Cho's Korean know, so so you know I mean it we, you know it's a question of I guess you know. Uh, how we how people want to argue that you know uh, uh, you know so, so what what happened to Sulu right why aren't we taught why isn't there a comic about why his ethnicity changed right did he did he have a different mother it's possible right he had a different mother in this universe or a different father in this universe oh I guess he couldn't have a different father if his name is Sulu but he has a different mother maybe in this universe possibly um, than than Sulu did in the other universe because everybody's futures are a little bit different. I mean, so you know you could explain that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I felt you know there's there's plenty. I'm sure they spent a great deal of time trying to find you know uh, an actor who you know of of a good actor of any variety. You know, and and I think it certainly is in Star Trek's mold to choose the best actor. 
um, for any role. In fact, I know that that's how Roddenberry operated the original series, that, that, that ethnicities and names and so on could change. You know, ironically, that's what happens with, with Khan originally, right, where it's going to be more of a, uh, a, you know, sort of Aryan kind of presentation and uh, was changed because of the casting of, of this. But unfortunately, you know, if this was, you know, really was just a guy named John Harrison, well, then you could mess around with the name and the ethnicity all you want, right? Because he's an original character who has no backstory. And, you know, there are, there, you know, if you close your eyes and you listen to Cumberbatch, there's plenty of times where he sounds like Ricardo Montalban in the sense of he has that dignity in the lines, you know, when he, when he, when he's, when he's going through those numbers, you know, when he's giving them the coordinates, it's like, how can you act and give coordinates? And he's doing it, you know, I mean, he's, he's making those numbers sound fantastic. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, Montauban was able to do that with exposition, you know, to make exposition sound like it isn't exposition and, uh, and the brilliance of, of Montauban as an actor. And I think it, Cumberbatch has that too. And the way he holds himself, the, 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 the way his body is, is he moves elegantly like Montalban did. And, but I found two problems. I certainly found the problem with the, the, the ethnicity being different, but also just the physicality being different. You know, Montalban was big. Um, he was muscular. And uh, I, I, I didn't like that, that, that this con wasn't, that this con was, you know, that really Kirk looks more bulky than he does. And I think that that, you know, that that isn't, you know, that, again, could be explained through through different mechanisms, too. But I think it was, you know, I'm sure they tried to, um, but I, I can't believe there was no one who was ethically consistent that that was a great actor that would have played this role. I mean, maybe I guess it's possible. Right. They might have run into problems with how much money they were offering or the timeline or when they were filming and, you know, maybe Benicio del Toro wanted to do it, but couldn't for this reason or that reason, or, you know, all the people that they looked at and it just time-wise didn't work out or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, I think 90% of the people who went to see the film didn't probably care, <laughs> you know, but, uh, the 10% who do care, I think matter. And, um, I think it matters, as you said, to the spirit of what Star Trek is. I, I would have liked to have seen an, an Indian actor in that role, um, uh, uh, you know, or or at least, uh, you know, somebody who resembled Ricardo Montalban. At the same time, if you do that, then is there a constant comparison? You know what I mean? Is it is it is, is that actor then doomed to be compared to Montalban, which is a daunting task? Um to, to be compared to and and then and then what do you do and in this regard you aren't going to compare him to Montalban that way and therefore he's free to do the role I mean so maybe it was a smart decision I don't know I think it did it did cause confusion and it did you know and I think some people thought it was done because they wanted to preserve the secret of Khan so really throw a, a people for a loop and then you're thrown so far for a loop you know that it it makes it almost hard to take, you know? Yeah. I, I, I doubt that that was the reason why they did it. You know, I think that, I think the real reason why they, they picked Cumberbatch was because he, they thought he was the best actor, you know, I mean, after Del Toro backed out, um, which I think that was a money dispute or something like that, if I'm not mistaken, I know they were talking about Edgar Ramirez, um, who's a really good actor, but I, I don't see him as Khan, honestly. Um, 
but you know, I don't know, they could have found someone. I mean, Javier Bardem is a name which, you know, was floated around, you know, back when they were doing press for 09. And I remember someone involved with the team, I think it might have been Orsi or Kurtzman or someone was like, oh my God, you know, if we could get Javier Bardem to play Khan, that would be the most amazing thing ever, you know? Um, but yeah, they could have found someone and, and they, they probably should have. I think that this was a misstep as awesome as Cumberbatch is in this movie. And I'm not taking anything away from him. I don't know. They're just, you're, you're walking on some, some very weird, uh, terrain when you cast a guy named Benedict Cumberbatch as, as Khan, you know, that's, (laughs) I, I don't know. That that seems to be, yeah, not a good idea. It's a it's a, pro, it's a problem, you know. I mean, here, I mean, this is a great example. I mean, he's certainly a great actor, but I've never hold the idea that he's the only. I mean, he's not the only actor, and he's no, not the he only can, great actor. I mean, they, they 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 sort of make it seem like in the spe, the special features, like he's the only one who could have played this role. And I, you know, I, he certainly does a wonderful job with it. But there are plenty of actors who could have played this role. And of course it could have been that they tried. And like I said, there was money problems or there was timing problems or some other commitment the person had, but you know, if they wanted, I guess if they wanted a name person in there, that may limit this to some degree. Um, I know that he came recommended by Steven Spielberg to, to JJ Abrams. So, you know, you would certainly want to take a look at him. Um, And, uh, and you know, his, his, his acting in this sequence here is just a great example of, you know, his ability as an actor, but I, there are other people that could have played this role and probably done as good or better. Um, and not without the, the, um, the confusion of that issue, you know, which I think, you know, so, you know, at the same time, Star Trek, you know, they, they, they still can they had a Mexican actor, right. Spanish Mexican actor play a, uh, an Indian in the original. So, I mean, there's, there's a problem there too. Right. I mean, so it's, it's, um, it's con- it's a confused issue. It's certainly p- part of Hollywood's history, right? How uh, the question of casting and how to cast and what is the, in essence, the balance between talent and, uh, I guess, in a way you could say, eth- ethicism um, when, you, when you do a casting role like that. Yeah. They're not the first filmmakers to face that issue, right? I mean, for sure. No. I'm, I'm sure what was done was done with a good heart, you know, and, and, and you can't, can't fault the acting. That's for sure. You know? Yeah. But here's the glass again, you know, a lot of the film is this, um, separation, you know, between these two characters. And this is a lot like the, uh, the, the way space seed was originally written. A lot of time spent chatting through, through the, force field three seconds how did he have time to say three seconds uh. <laughs> so here we're going to get to see the oh there's the there's the galaxy class almost right kind of like <laughs> a galaxy class yeah. um the evil galaxy then it's black too or dark it's gray you know so it's that makes it evil because it's <laughs> It's a, it's a black ship. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes no sense to have a warship that you can point out on a black background. 
in space. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But do they really? I mean, do, do they use a view screen? To, I mean, I would hope they're using something more technologically advanced to target. You know, they're not doing it by the view screen. But yeah, yeah and, and put in like Star Trek Two, it would have been helpful if the if the ship wasn't you know bright white against the Mutara Nebula. That's true. Well, that's true. That is true. <laughs> what did you guys think of uh, Admiral Marcus, who is listed is kind of considered to be the the real villain of the film by the filmmakers? Yeah, I, I like. Yeah, I like. I like him. Um, I like his idea of being. Uh, you know, the he's he believes that he's doing right. I think that that good villains believe they're doing the right thing, and and I like that that Marcus uh, believes he's doing the right thing. He's sure he's provoking war, but it's war that's going to happen, so we might as well you know take the first shot. And uh, and I, I like uh, what's his name, Peter, Peter Weller. Weller, yeah. I'm so used to calling him RoboCop. I had to think of his name. He's Doctor Peter Weller now. He has a Ooh, PhD. Yeah. Yes, he earned a PhD uh, in uh, Italian Renaissance art history. He had a wow. master's degree for many years. He lectured on that. He was a teacher, and um, now he earned his PhD. I think he announced it at the Las Vegas Star Trek convention that he's uh, that he earned his uh, earned it. So uh, did her, you know, his dissertation. Uh, was accepted and that's really cool you know yeah i've heard that he has like he has like a genius level iq and stuff like that apparently this guy is pretty smart and yet (laughs) Um. yet he doesn't like her well you know but he but he you know he's the 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 way that they have him is an interesting you know i mean without getting political right i mean this is certainly sort of referencing i think decisions that were made to, to protect them you know the united states and and so on here and, and were they the right decisions or not and um you know he uh he's an interesting character the only thing i worry a little bit is he is this this almost obsession he has in killing this crew it, it, it it moves him to more of a cartoon villain. I think he, he, his motivation, um, and his, his, uh, backstory, um, you know, were interesting and could have really explored, you know, been gone that way with a character that's, you know, thinks he's doing the right thing. And he does think he's doing the right thing, but to justify killing all these people who are your own people, who are your Starfleet people, it just doesn't make it just makes him kind of cartoony, I think. And, and, and it isn't that, you know, he sent the ship out with a skeleton crew or anything, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of people on that ship and he knows that there's lots of people on that ship. So he's really a psychopath. And, and I think that that, that's always unfortunate when, you know, cause Khan isn't, Khan's not a psychopath, right? He's, 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 deliberate in what he does he's he's psych- mm-hmm. he's psychotic in the sense that he's easy he's evil you know? she he kills people and he and he kills innocent people but you know his his view at least there's a logic to that horrible thing he does to all those starfleet people right these people are the brass these are the people who are threatening his family these are the people who ha- are going to destroy his family so he's not shooting up that room just for marcus he's shooting up the room because it's all of you know, he could have shot up Marcus anywhere, right? But he wants to assemble together Starfleet's leaders 
who he feels are his enemies. If you watch real fast, there was R2-D2 right there <laughs> going out the ship there. If you pause it, I think at one seventeen, one hour, 17 minutes and 18 seconds, you see R2. Um, for his second tour of duty aboard the Enterprise, the, the Enterprise, I guess, or, or a Starfleet vessel, anyway. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, he 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 has a reason for doing what he does, even though it's an evil action. This seems to me to be really kind of gratuitous and 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 and, and unexplainable in a way, other than I got to get rid of these people because, you know, he could have came up and played the game, right? He could have said, Khan's, Khan's lying to you. None of this is true. You know, or, or Harrison's lying to you. None of that is true. And, uh, you know, then gone on. It just seems like a strange thing that he does, you know. And then, um, you know, does he does he hit his daughter? I'm trying to remember. No, I don't think so. Is, is it Khan, Khan who hits the daughter? Yeah, he Khan breaks her leg. Yeah. Right, but does Khan does it he slap his daughter? I can't remember. I guess we'll have to see. I don't think so. I don't remember that. Okay. Yeah. I like how you're 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 right. He does seem crazed, especially he chases them one, they're already back to Earth. Uh, so he's in orbit of the moon and he's just like, I'm just gonna blow up this other Federation ship within sight of Earth. Yeah, it just seems like he didn't I mean they I you know, I think they could have explored him more, I guess, is what I'm saying. And had they maybe not had to do the uh, John Harrison secret to Khan, they could have used some of that screen time to maybe further develop him. Because I do think he does have an interesting motivation. And, you know, he has arguments to make, you know. And I think they could have went into that a little bit more. And, you know, maybe he, had, he could have suffered a you know, more of a personal loss that made him do this. Maybe he did. I mean, maybe do they, I don't know. Do they explain what happened? Is, I think the mother's name is Jane, or I think her name is Jane Wallace, the mother of Carol Marcus in the, in the extended universe. Anyway, do they explain what happens to her? Is she still alive? Uh, here, here, I don't think so. Deleted scenes. She says something about being in England, right? With her mother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's why she has the accent. Yeah, but I mean, but part of it, I, I wonder how much, you know, like here he's like, if if it's any consolation, I was never going to spare your crew. I don't think that that I I don't think that the reason why he's killing them is because he doesn't like them. I think it's well, two reasons. One is because they know too much, right? So they can take him down, and the other thing is all of the the rest of of Khan's people are on there, right? So he's trying to get rid of them too. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, but if he wasn't go if he wasn't going to spare them, right? The initial idea, right, was that they would launch those torpedoes, but they couldn't get out of the space, and so they would have been destroyed by the Klingons, right? So it's mm -hmm. the, the, he, they were they were always going to die, and it just seems to me like contrary to what his philosophy is. His philosophy is protecting the Federation and protecting people. So the way you do that is to destroy your, I guess, because you want to start a war, I suppose. Right. So you have to, I guess you have to have those victims and the sacrifice of those, those people, I suppose. But it just, it seems to me it's more interesting if it's not, if, if they don't paint with that big brush, you know, um, yeah, I can that kind of that. broad mustache, mustache twirling brush. And they, they've been maybe a little more complex, I suppose. And it would have been an inter more interesting, Villain, and had he had more screen time, just you know, just to kind of develop him and to show him as a loving father, maybe, or or, or something like that, where you felt a bit of compassion 
for him, which is why, you know, villains like, you know, Darth Vader, I think, works as a villain, even in the original Star Wars, when we knew nothing about him, because he was a victim. I mean, you could tell he was a victim of something, right? I mean, something bad happened to this guy. And so you get a sense of him being kind of a diminished man, um, which which makes him a tad sympathetic, even when we didn't really know him that well. And I, I would have liked to have had a little bit more of that, you know. Man. Yeah, I'm criticizing the film when I when I think it's a great film. I mean, just this exchange here is a great, is a wonderful, great great exchange. Mm-hmm. You know, at this point in the movie, I was actually kind of contemplating whether or not they were going to make Khan more sympathetic, kind of like what you were talking about. Uh, them doing with Marcus, you know, at this point I was thinking like, maybe, maybe like a a little bit of a twist here is that Khan, whose motivations are, are sound primarily is not going to be evil, is not going to be ruthless so much as he was in the uh, original series. And that maybe at the end of the day, they'll get along, you know? And, and I kind of had that feeling up until the scene coming up with, uh, with prime Spock and it's kind of unfortunate that they did decide to go full bad guy with Khan because you already Mm -hmm. had like, you know, a more, I'd say evil character in Marcus. So you didn't really need that. And I don't know. To be fair, that would have really been a surprise, right? If, If you made Khan a hero, um, you know, ultimately would have been a would have been a surprise worthy, you know, of a secret being kept. You know, um, I've always felt that the surprise is that they that they really spend all this time making sure that people get kept are not that. I mean, they're not that important or they're not that interesting. You know, of a surprise. I mean, Vulcan being destroyed and Spock's mother dying were surprises in the first film, but. But I don't know that the the secrecy that in some ways affects all the other parts of it, right? So, you know, the reason that the toys weren't maybe as good as they could have been or some of the, you know, there there wasn't as much of the marketing as there could have been in the terms of merchandising and collectibles partially could be because they try to keep these secrets, right? So they do these, you know, there was almost not a novel for the first film, right? That was all done at the last minute. Um, uh, you know, b- book-wise speaking, you know, certainly enough for Alan Dean Foster to produce a really great book, and, and Zachary Quinto's uh, 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 audio book is just amazing. You know, I think he's great at it. But you know, that was that there was a concern of whether or not they were going to do that, which is also you know something that was happened with Star Trek too. I have some memos in our in the paperwork that we were able to look at that they they talk about, you know, how are we going to do this book, right? And they, they were talk, kind of contemplating releasing the book without the ending. And then you could go back and bring a, your receipt and get the last chapter um, afterwards. Because, you know, for, for a novel to sell it, it really needs to be out before the movie, right? I mean, a lot of people, right. the sales are the people who want to know the story so badly that they're, they're going to go get it, you know, um, ahead of time. And, and so I, I know that was a dilemma for them, but these secrets are never really that great. And uh, I don't, I don't really think Khan was a good secret. I mean, I think it wasn't, you know, uh, it kind of muddles the story a little bit and, and it's unnecessary. Here's glass again, you know, the the two of them 
both wearing these glass helmets, and then Kirk's glass helmet cracks like his glasses do in the first film, and I always thought that that was kind of interesting, even perhaps accidental, but uh, uh, neat little glass theme still going on in the film. Yeah, I, I agree that the con secret was stupid, but at the same time, I mean, I, I see the uh, the desire to not reveal any, everything going into a movie and, um, you know, like the idea of like, hey, let's make sure that we can get good toys out or, or, or like, oh, I'm you know, I'm bummed out that there's that the toys are suffering because we wanted to protect the movie. I mean, that that seems a little backwards to me, you know. I mean, there's always going to be time for toys. <laughs> but, well, I but I do think I do think, you know, you know, this is the highest grossing Star Trek film of all time, you know, uh Into Darkness. But the box office in the US wasn't I don't, you know, no I don't think anybody's crying at, at all for sure. It was very very successful. But that certainly, I don't think it made what they wanted it to make. Yeah. I mean, it made what they wanted them to make. It, it, they wanted it to make in the sense that they made a tremendous profit off of it. But, you know, that, that it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And I think some of that was because of the way that everything external to the film was handled. I don't think it was a problem necessarily with the film itself, mm-hmm. but rather with the, with these things that are external to the film, I, of course, the filmmaker's first responsibility, right, is to the film. So, uh, uh, you know, and you're absolutely right. I'm happy about that. Their, their first, you know, is not to the toys, right? Um, however, if you're going to cultivate uh, younger fans, if you're going to bring kids into this universe, if you're going to make Star Trek be like it was in the early 1990s when it's on the cover of Time magazine and, you know, there's TV shows and you couldn't walk into a store and not find Star Trek products and make it culturally relevant, not make it a thing that comes in every four years, does its thing and leaves, but rather yeah. has a resonance in the culture the way the original did. Um, it needs to be more than just a movie. And, uh, um, you know, I'm just always depressed when I go in and I see, you know, that there are, you know, there's uh, other franchises, uh, you know, have a constant presence in the culture uh, via T-shirts and, via, you know, during via all these other things. And Star Trek, you know, the, 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 these, the, these things are, I mean, the, everything that's made, with a rare exception, is not even based on these films, right? It's all, it's all Shatner, Kirk. Uh, you know Nimoy, McCoy, uh, Nimoy, uh, uh, Spock. It's all original series things, or it's next gen things. I mean, it's not even like this film is getting a whole lot of attention from the world out. You know, uh, 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 you know, uh, other than when it's in the theaters. You know, which is not not a way to become, I think, culturally significant. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, they 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 have their eye on the right ball, right? The the right ball is not the boy. This will make a cute toy. <laughs> let's let, mm-hmm. let's make Ewoks or something. You know, it's not something like that. You know, it's it's uh, they they have their eye on the prize. You know, which is why I'm glad. You know that there's going to be consistency with the next film. I think Roberto Orsi is a is, for whatever you know 
anybody. I don't want anybody would care what my opinion is, but but uh, you know, I, I think even for people who don't like these new films, whatever is Star Trek in them, whatever you do look at and go, oh, that's Star Trek. That that has the heart of it. You know, uh, it, it was brought by by Orsi, and so I think him as the director and him as the writer. Uh, again, with 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 other writers, it, it, it is is a good sign and a hopeful sign for the next film. I'm I'm happy uh, about that, you know. And then hopefully they keep some of what J.J. Abrams did. That was great, you know, the, the the sort of cleverness and the brilliance and the scope of it and and all of that, you know. This yeah. scene, I had a problem. With, I had a problem with this sequence too because I always thought. You know, I, I guess Scotty has to make a choice here, right? You know, and, and doesn't have much of a choice to make if he's going to save the ship, save his comrades, save Kirk. But I was kind of bothered by that because my, if that guy is Section Thirty One, um, he's still Starfleet, right? And in the sense of, mm. they're still Starfleet, right? I mean, if I understand Section Thirty One, they operate outside the charter. But they're part of the founding documents, right? And which hence the name Section Thirty One. So if those guys are Section Thirty One, they are Starfleet, and he just killed that guy. <laughs> you know. Yeah, but it is. I mean, he like even he's like. But he I'm has sorry. What, what choice does he have? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, he doesn't have a choice, yeah. I suppose, in that situation. And you know, Marcus does, would have killed him, right? <laughs> right. And he does say in that that thing. I mean, not that I think this makes any difference at all, but he's like. Are you Starfleet or private security? Because you look like private security. So I don't know what that. Hmm. They're they're trying to right. They're trying to kind of explain that. I guess you know. I, know. I literally groaned and threw my hat on the ground in theaters. I'm sorry. Really? When this happened? Really? Yep. Because I was like, really? Oh yeah. I literally took my hat off and threw it to the ground. <laughs> See, I I did not have any problem with this at all. I I, I thought. I mean, when he comes up on there's that just screen, no reason. I. The, I thought it was. And cool. why this one time? Why not warn him about V'ger? Warn him oh, about the Doomsday Machine? Oh, she hits him. I'm sorry, machine. guys. She she hits him. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. Okay. I apologize. Didn't mean to interrupt. But I mean, it's to me, it's like why this one time? Because this is what happens to come up now. It's not like they're constantly asking him about it. And I think also there's probably an emotional component at play here, where he's like. That's the yeah, dude that Spock killed me. But Young Spock didn't me. know that. What? Oh, well. But Young Spock doesn't know that. Well, he's who's to say that he doesn't call him up all the time, you know? Right. It makes it look like Young Spock every time. It's just like, so we ran into the, you know, we got this planet. There's a bunch of gangsters down there. What should we do? I, I think. Really? Stop. Leave me alone. I think, I guess, desperate times call for desperate measures. I don't know. But. Uh... But there's no reason for him not to trust Khan at this point. This entire scene was written so that it could easily be cut out if they couldn't get Nimoy in. And so it doesn't, it doesn't, Spock doesn't stop Khan from betraying everybody. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't warn anybody. There's no reason for this. Not a single reason except the look, Leonard Nimoy, we're, we're cool now. I don't know. To me. Yeah, I guess, I guess you could have it be where it's, the reason is, I mean, is this what gives Spock the inspiration to think outside the box and do a Kirk maneuver. Yeah. You know, so he says, how, how do I stop them? So they don't, he doesn't, he doesn't, you don't get to see what the, you know, so does Spock say you need to think like Kirk or, or, you know, something like that, or, or does, does old Spock go, all right, so you got these torpedoes, right? 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, what is I, how, how much? You're gonna have to go into. Gonna... Is he on another ship? Go into a nebula. Right. Yeah. I'm. I'm very curious as. Here's an idea. I'm, yeah. I'm very curious as to what uh, Prime Spock's response was to that because, uh, but but I'm glad that we don't see it. But there, there, there is just sort of. I mean, that moment, regardless of whether or not it's necessary or whatever. I mean, I think that's just such an awesome moment. And I know that I'm completely in the minority here. I know that everyone in the world disagrees with me. But I just think when you see him come up on that screen, you're like, oh, yeah. And then just that moment for old Spock, I just think is so great where he's like, I've taken a vow to never say anything. However, (laughs) I'm going to make an exception in this case because I hate that dude. He killed me, you know? But I always didn't. thought, you know, I always thought that it would it would have been a mistake not to have. I mean, I'm 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 of the mindset. So I'm kind of glad that, although you don't know how they're using Kirk and Spock and the uh, meaning Shatner and Nimoy in the next film, you know, it could be that it's uh, it's uh, they're going to meet their future selves. So then they're really not playing Kirk and Spock from the original show, right? They're they're playing this Kirk and Spock older. I mean, we don't know what's gonna how that's going to happen, but. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, you know, when you have, when you have Scotty floating around out there in the next gen world, I was always sort of like, why don't you call Scotty? Like, why don't you, you know, Scotty mm-hmm. could fix this. And it just seems like you, 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 it's so, I don't know if that was necessarily the best use of the character, but, but I, I'm, I'm glad that they didn't, it wasn't sort of like, ah, we just used Nimoy for the first one because, you know, that we wanted to have that 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 gimmick, but that he is he is important to this. That, that Spock, the Prime Spock, is important to this universe, and yeah. and is doing yeah. something, and he's got a life, and it's you know. Um, but uh, you know, here's one of those moments where you know, I again a question. I don't know if it's a logic question or, or not, but uh, um, Scotty stuns uh, Khan right um, in the face. <laughs> And, and and now I don't know, maybe Khan's playing a game here, right? And he's just kind of going yeah. down to 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 see what plays out, right? Um yeah. or if he's really stunned. Now if he's really stunned, then do, does Uhura's phaser not work right because it's on a lower setting? I mean she has to blast him like like several times no. and he's still coming towards her. Was it was it the I think it takes several shots. Yeah, no, I, I think I think what happened here, you know, and, and I didn't pick up on this, you know, the first time or two that I watched it either, but I'm I'm pretty certain what happened is Scotty stuns him and it knocks him to the ground, you know, but he it, but it didn't knock him out. But once he was on the ground, he's like, okay, I'm going to wait for my opportunity because if I just get up right now, they're going to shoot me again, right? So being like a, a a master tactician or whatever, he decided to stay on the ground and wait for his moment, you know. But I don't think he was ever knocked out by that stun, you know. Yeah, that's what I think is. Yeah, I mean that's that's I think is the good explanation for that because otherwise it's just either that or her a, a yeah, different no. style of phaser or something. I don't know because I mean you've got Spock like doing a neck pinch on him and he's not going down and everything like that. I mean, this guy is extremely resilient to, to everything. Unless you have, um, a thing you grab from the wall, a white thing that looks kind of like a toothpaste tube, and you, <laughs> and you hit him in the back a few times, then he's out. That's kind of, it's an interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then, but of course it wasn't him anyway. It was his stunt double. So it didn't matter. <laughs> and it was obviously <laughs> that's, a stunt double. That's what happened. Yeah. That's it. It wasn't really calm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Alice Eve, I think is a good, you know, is a good addition. I'm, I'm, and I'm really glad they avoided any romance. Uh, I, I think for Kirk really in both films, I think it's, that's a wise maneuver, uh, you know, rather the, mo- the romance on Kirk and I mean, not rather on Spock and, uh, and Uhura as the characters, and even that not not going into that too much because you didn't want to turn this into like nine hundred two and zero or anything like that. His romance really mm-hmm. is not at the heart of what Star Trek is about. You know, as a you know, certainly the films don't have the time really to, to delve into those kinds of issues. And uh, but I was glad that they kind of saved that. Maybe that'll be an emotional. Uh, situation you know that for, for kirk in the next film you know yeah i'm, I'm sure david that <laughs> right little david <laughs> he should have that little sweat he should have his little sweater on when he <laughs> <laughs> little seven-year-old no, david or something <laughs> no no that's okay i always oh, wondered yeah, I, actually... you know i I, I never, I, I never really got a chance to ask any of the filmmakers that question, but uh, I, you know, was were were Kirk and and Carol married at any time? Because I know there are some interviews at, at the time when Shatner says implies that they were married like that that's sort of his ex-wife and not that it really in a grand scheme of things matters but i mean that would be interesting that at some point kirk thought and thought to settle down to marry somebody you know um and what the implications of that are um you know uh if they were married and was she serving you know was she starfleet originally too you know uh, mm-hmm. you know and uh when it is i, I would I, I would guess that they were not married because they would have had to have been separated before David was conscious of their existence, essentially, you know, because he had no idea that Kirk was his father. And and didn't and didn't didn't he she he actually say like oh that overgrown Boy Scout you used to date or something like that? Yeah, yeah, no yeah. Idea. I mean, he's, he knows who yeah, Kirk I mean, is, but. I mean, I know in the in the extended universe or whatever that's worth is, uh, um, you know that 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 Kirk Kirk did have interactions with David, but not not anything that would have tipped him off that he, they were father and son, and very infrequently, like maybe twice or something like that, you know, throughout his life. Yeah. You know, so uh, again, I, I again, there's a character who I wish would have had more time. It would have been interesting to see that. That, you know, I love that theme in Wrath of Khan, where you have Kirk has a has a son, and Spock has a a symbolic daughter, and Khan has a symbolic or actual, depending on who you want to believe, son um, in Yalcum. You know that you that, that I, I love those kinds of you know again a father father theme through Wrath of Khan that's kind of carried out here. You know. Mm-hmm. Now, now this doesn't make sense to me. So they can't even activate thrusters with the warp core online. Like, why can't they? Why can't they use fusion reactors or some other? Something's keeping the lights on. <laughs> pull, they, pull they power those, from they from life power support. Analysis, you know, 
that you use for your your cell phone when it's on a power. It is strange. <laughs> it is strange. maybe maybe it runs maybe the thrusters run in the same power or the only the, the lights run in the same power as the holodeck and can't be converted to thruster power. <laughs> yep. A little Voyager humor there. Uh, totally totally uh that Neelix was cooking cheese. <laughs> Neelix was That's cooking the cheese that got into the bioneural gels and affected the There we go. JJ versus Neelix. <laughs> there was actually a lot of people don't know there was a scene with Neelix in the finale. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that and everyone would believe you. Yeah. I, yeah. I know, isn't it? Well, yeah, I gotta do is say it was in a previous draft. <laughs> <laughs> Get away no, no, I read this draft. Yeah. I'm the only person that read this draft because I wrote it, and uh, it really has nothing to do with me. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh... But yeah, this uh, this is great film. I mean, what you know, and the way that they, you know, the 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 bonus features and the, the the explanation of how they did these stunts and how they filmed these, and again, using all sort of old fashioned filmmaking techniques, you know, as they're running around here in the Budweiser, right? <laughs> whatever. <it's>, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, Star Trek never done on the scale before, you know, of course. I always love this, too. I love that Chekhov saves them. That's because you kind of forget about Chekhov, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you, he's, 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 you know, doing his thing in engineering and then for him to appear and to save Kirk. And I think is a great, you know, great use of the character. You know, he's always mm-hmm. saving Kirk, right? He saves him in the first film and he saves him in this film. <laughs> that's just what he's yeah. good and at. it's very good that the ship writes itself at just the right moment <laughs> yeah oh that poor ship it can't it can't not get broken yeah <laughs> the, uh... the behind the deflector dish the deflector dish is falling off i hope you know that <laughs> I do love that that Scotty line where he's like, "I've been off this ship for one day," you know. <laughs> <laughs> now they filmed. This was all filmed, right? This stuff was filmed at that uh, National Ignition Facility, wasn't it? I think where they did that. Is that this? I think that's the the scenes when when Kirk is. Is that right? I can't remember where they filmed what they where they filmed that. I think that was the first time that the Department of Energy ever allowed a film to to be filmed there. Hmm. hmm. It's like you isn't the Warp Corps like a NASA thing? Yeah, I thought I thought I don't know where that because I thought Cumberbatch was in the scenes that they filmed in the, at that National Ignition Facility. Is this it here? The this big uh, the the Warp Corps. Yeah, I thought that that's yeah. what this was. I don't know why. Why would Cumberbatch have been there though? But I don't know. Maybe they filmed Maybe. other sequences there. No. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, um, yeah, like in like I think Star Trek. 5, yeah, Star Trek Five. They were they were the first film to ever be allowed to film in Yosemite proper. Um, you know, because of the message of Star Trek and you know all of that. So I think mm-hmm. that's what happened here too. Also, because Shatner was directing, and if Shatner asks you to do something then you say yes because it's Shatner yes yes yeah. I agree <laughs> speaking of early versions speaking of early versions of scripts um, Carol 
Marcus was in the orig original version of the 2009 script. That's not a joke. Uh, that's not an Elix joke. That's real. Um, she was supposed to be a neighbor of young Kirk, kind of establishing the two of them knew each other as children. Not a big role or anything, but um, that was a, that was not not filmed and and left the drafts as they they got made. So it was kind of neat that they were able to you know that, to to use that character again because I always thought she was a great. You know, B.B. Beach was wonderful. You know, uh, I, I always thought that was a very interesting character and, and, you know, somebody who obviously Kirk had a great affection for. So and, and you know, wanted to be with her. Right. I mean, she, the, the implication is that he, you know, wanted her with him in, in his world and, and she didn't want that for her son. So, yeah, that sounds like a good edit. Um <laughs> Having having her be Kirk's Carol Carol lived on one side and and Gary Mitchell lived on the other side of the house and uh, it's like down the block this... with Janet Wallace <laughs> everybody lived in Iowa yeah, it's like the Smallville version of Star Trek yeah <laughs> oh, stop hurting the Enterprise beautiful beautiful I had some frame here. rate issues so I don't I don't know if we're in the same part what did you say. I had some frame rate issues. My Blu-ray was messing oh, up. Well. Right now he's kicking the... Uh... Okay. He just started kicking for me. It, this is, beautiful this music is a, here. It is beautiful music. This is one sequence in here. You know, there's a few things where I'm just like, ah, you're going maybe a bit too far with your scale, you know? And like <laughs> early on, it's like... He, there's so much resistance there that it looks like no matter what, like that thing is not moving at all, no matter how hard he kicks mm -hmm. it and the angle that he's at and everything like he's just not going to do that. I think if they would have taken down the scale of that ever so slightly, it would have been more believable in a good way. You know, I understand that it's larger than life, but it would have at least not taken you out of the movie or taken me out of the movie. And the I whole it, dropping, it, it, it moved because Shatner asked it to. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Will you move? And, and the whole ship dropping through the clouds and then rising up above them. I mean, I know that that's something which is done a million times in a million movies, but it works well here. Mm -hmm. I like it. I like seeing this Enterprise come above the clouds. Mm -hmm. I like how the music, you know, with the music that, that the Enterprise theme is also Kirk's theme. And so, you know, I, I like that, uh, you know, as Kirk is dying, the ship is dying. I mean, there's certainly a nice kind of motif there, you know, uh, because the two of them are, are, are eventually anyway. Uh, you never get the sense that he has a great love for the ship necessarily yet in these films where he's performed that kind of attachment, you know. Uh, but maybe this is what helps him form that kind of attachment that he eventually has to the ship. And here's glass again, right? Another glass sequence. Now, are 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 we all okay with this line for line thing? I I there was just another time when I groaned in the theaters. I didn't expect them to. I expected them to have callbacks to Rathacon, but when they started, you know, you better get down here. And, and, you know, you'll flood the whole compartment. It's like, can we, we can have this scene without it being line for line remake. Cause you're just inviting criticism. I, I don't have any problem with that. Um, and I mean, it, it was, 
to, like, to me, when, when I was watching this and they started doing that, I was like, oh, man, like this is for real. And I know where this is going now. And, and I think it's kind of interesting how they're they're flipping this. And, and I understand, you know, why they're flipping it. And, and it's kind of interesting how it's commenting on, you know, sort of like what the characters are going through in this movie and their personal growth and all that stuff. And the thing that I was thinking at this point in time, which was sort of getting me really excited, actually, was like, are they going to do this? Are they going to actually kill Kirk? It only lasted about 30 seconds, but I was like, <laughs> that would be such a bold and awesome move, and that would make such a statement about this new timeline and everything, and I, like that to me is just would be awesome. Like as much as I love Captain Kirk and, you know, he's my favorite character and everything like that. And I understand that, you know, the whole point of these movies is to sort of get back to that original dynamic and everything. But if they were to just right here, be like, Kirk's dead, I would have been like, Oh my God, this is the most amazing thing ever. And then they compress Star Trek three into five minutes. And I'm just like, Guys, <laughs> come on, guys. But whatever. This moment is still great. Yeah, I like this work where, where when Kirk does that little maneuver where he does the Vulcan hand gesture and Spock is crying on the other side, I always thought that the, this was an acknowledgement to the two of them, that, that Kirk now finally understands Spock and respects him and, and knows why he is the way that he is. And Spock is embracing embraced Kirk, right? He does what Kirk would have done, Kirk says, um, using what he wanted against him, referring to Khan, and then Spock, you know, crying. And so you get this kind of moment where the two of them acknowledge that that the each each other has something the other person needs, and that they but that they also respect that difference between the two of them. I, I thought that was great. I, you know, it. The problem is it's such a short scene that even though it's only a few lines that are from Wrath of Khan, it feels like it becomes a a a, a, a you know a, like a, like a psycho remake you know where it's it's exactly the same. But when you really look at it, I mean there is there are important differences. Their dialogue is different uh, when they're actually communicating with each other. This yell here, I think, uh, was a mistake. Uh, for several reasons, but if you forget the original reference to that, right, if you just pretend like that, that did, I don't know how you could, but if you can pretend that didn't happen in Wrath of Khan, that actually is a great, brilliant way to get you back to Khan, right? Because there's, there's another character you forget about for a good 15 minutes or whatever that time it feels like 15 minutes, where you forget about Khan because you're so invested in the ship the danger that the ship is in and that moment brings you back to Khan um, and, and reestablishes him in a very forceful way back on the story. So editing wise, that's great. Character wise, would Spock yell Khan? Uh, that's a question. Khan didn't and, have anything to do with that really. Right. Right. And, and, oh. and it doesn't make a lot and it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, you know, except that Khan is of course, you know, remotely responsible, right? In the sense that he's, he's the one who's causing all, but really Marcus is the one who's the more responsible for that. Um, and he really should have yelled out Marcus's name. Right. Uh, so it, mm -hmm. it, and I don't know that, you know, it, would, it might've been more effective to go a truly inverse way and have him say Khan's name in a gentle way, 
you know, in a logical way, um, uh, perhaps instead of yelling, you know, because but I guess they have to get him in his frenzy, right? Because he has to get into the plactile fever here and and, uh, and, <laughs> and, and 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 become, you know, become violent. So I mean, they have to. It, it, I found it fascinating the last couple of weeks uh, that Nicholas Meyer has started to comment on the film a little bit, and I. I've been dying to know what he, what he thought of it. And, uh, I found his comments to be really interesting, you know, um, uh, about the film, you know, what he, what his take on this film was since he, you know, obviously is, is connected to this film in the sense of, you know, the original source material. Yeah. His comments, have, I, I've seen a few different things, you know, where they all pretty much ask the same question, but the way that it's framed is always so awkward. I feel so bad for him because it's like, Hey, I'm promoting this movie that I just made with J.J. Abrams' dad. Oh, so you know J.J. Abrams. Yeah, he's a really good guy. Um, so what would you think about the new movies? And he's like, well, you know, I don't understand them. <laughs> but, but, you know, um, with with the Khan yelling thing, I mean, th that is interesting. I never really thought about that. I mean, because Khan says, like, I'm going to blow up your ship. You know, and he's like, no ship should go down without her captain. But, like, does he actually have a chance to do it before they blow up? I, I can't. Does does Khan fire any shots at the, at the Enterprise? He has 15 seconds, yeah. So he does fire some shots. Yes. Okay, so it is kind of his fault. Okay, that's cool. Well, yeah, I mean, they're both re they're both responsible, so maybe you should have yelled yeah. out Marcus Khan. Here's Glass again, <laughs> no. right? Glass. Yeah. I'm I'm wondering, y you mentioned the Plactau and how... Maybe, okay, so in Amok Time, uh, Spock is in Plaktau and he's, you know, all violent and stuff, but killing Kirk dying really snaps him out of it. I wonder if the inverse is true here. Yeah, yeah you know, I wonder I, if Kirk I, yeah, dying yeah, yeah, drove yeah. him, like chemically, maybe, you know, you killed my friend. Yeah, and I think, you know, you can make an argument. He doesn't have that. The, you know, to what influence does his mother. You know what? What influence does his mother have on him? What influence does his planet and the people have on him, which are all absent from him now? So, so you know, is he more emotional um, as a character just because he doesn't have that? There's no, you know, the Vulcan people are just trying to survive now, and so he doesn't have that that's that 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 place, that home place to go to 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 immerse himself in that Vulcan world and that culture and you know there isn't going to be a, a colinar for him on on the Vulcan homeworld right uh, because there's no homeworld for him to go to and so mm -hmm. you know you can you could kind of forgive that and I think you're right too this 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 this, this the, his experience melding with with uh, Pike and you know now Kirk has died could have driven him to some sort of a you know state where he becomes savage like as he is here you know because he because he really is i mean you know uh, uh brutal you know to Khan here you know right you know in terms of the character fight and of course you get the music um the amok time whatever it is seven notes or something like that from amok time that they use in that fight which is great yeah it's not even the just the the absence of of Vulcan culture and his mom, and it's it's I think also the loss, and that's something which you know they've been building up since Vulcan blew up. You know, is that he's now emotionally damaged, 
And, you know, that's, I think, the whole thing which is playing in, and they did a good job of sort of, like, seeding it in the comics and then showing it, you know, in the very first scene and how he's got sort of a death wish and he's uh, really doesn't, I mean, that that's, I think, why he, he mind melds mind melds with uh, Pike and everything like that is he's sort of become obsessed with death, you know? And uh, just to see Kirk die... I mean, that was like the tipping point. And I, I, I never had a problem with this. I know that that was like one of the things that Meyer was saying. He's like, I don't understand Spock uh, slugging, slugging people, as he said, like three times. <laughs> um, but to me, I totally understand that. You know, it, it makes sense to me. But I like the, uh, uh, you know, I, I always, uh, of course, this is, that writ a, a large a thousand times more but you know in star trek five you do have nimoy going you know the damn you sir you will try I me mean, showing anger right i mean not not to this level he doesn't he doesn't smack around the klingon guy you know um but you know i think there are flashes of anger he he's angry at valeris right he, sna- he slaps that uh that uh, phaser out of her hand and you know and frankly that what he does to her to get that information is a violation right i mean she 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 doesn't say no don't do that but i mean she's not i mean that that, that's always a scene that you really can 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 start questioning and debating what what is going on in that that mind meld in in six Mm -hmm. and uh so you know there are certainly hints of the savage, right, in Spock, even when he's not under the influence of something, you know, of a flower or something like that or, or whatever. There, there's, there's elements of that because that's part of who the character is. He's, you know, and I think in this version you could say, you know, he doesn't have that, uh, that compass. Uh, the many compasses are missing for him. Uh, and like yeah. you said, him dealing, a lot, dealing with losses he never had to deal with, right? Uh, um from a guy who really was personally, you know, he chose Vulcan. I mean, imagine that, right? He, he chooses Vulcan because of Spock, right? Because he, he blames Spock and by extension all Vulcans for the death of Romulus. So Nero, the, the destruction of Vulcan is a direct result of Spock's existence. And that, that certainly can be a tough thing to live with, you know. Uh, if you look really closely on the monitor here, you'll see Dr. Boyce's name. Um, <laughs> listed, which is kind of a cool a little homage. Yep, there it is. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd want a Vulcan expert working on me, but that's okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, so Kirk's alive. Was, uh, no, Boyce was the. Boyce was just the guy on the Enterprise, right? Yeah, I'm thinking I'm gonna get my back yeah. out here, right? Yeah, Boyce was the guy from the uh, from um, the first the first Star Trek. So Kirk's alive now. They brought him back to life. This seems problematic. Yeah, that for was easy. Multiple reasons. One, you brought him back to life, so that's dumb. Two, <laughs> um, you brought him back to life with a device which theoretically could be used on everyone now. It's it seems like I mean that along with like the trans warp beaming thing. It's like those are like two instances in this movie where they seem to have written themselves into a corner and that they've made things too easy you know i mean and i like how when he wakes up after his long in, uh, you know experience <clears throat> in the hospital he he looks fabulous his hair is perfectly combed <clears throat> that's nice to know beard is shaved you know 
Well, you know, because I mean, to me, if if he was a little more disheveled, it would give you the sense that there was. I mean, to me, it almost seems like well, that was just no big deal, right? I mean, the idea that he looks perfect kind of makes me feel like there's no no process there. You know, it's just immediate, and you know, that's Kirk. Kirk always looks good. You know, mm-hmm. that's his thing. I wish they would have. It would have been nice to include the scene that they haven't deleted sequence. I think with the little girl um, to kind of bookend that uh, that idea. You know, sort of con con. Do you follow the con path of revenge and vengeance, and you know, or do you follow the Kirk path of you know trying to do the right thing? I think. Um, I mean, just looking at it editorially and sort of like the way that the transitions work in this end sequence I, I think while that scene would have been nice to have in the movie I don't know exactly how it would fit like mechanically or structurally or whatever you know I mean so I think that that sacrificing that scene in order to you know sort of maintain the the, the rhythm and and the the sort of overall feeling of this uh ending is reasonable. Yeah, I think so. I I guess you would have had to put that at the start of that scene, I suppose. And then you don't get that nice, you know, voiceover thing. Yeah. So here they are. They're going to go on the 5-year mission. I really like the fact that they're keeping Marcus on board, although she hasn't been in the comics yet, has she? I don't well, I'm kind of behind in the comics, but I yeah, think, no, she's in the comics yeah, from yeah, that yeah, point on. In the comics, yeah. She is. Okay. I like how they yeah, and I like how they use the word family there as a little foreshadowing, I suppose. <laughs> Part of the family. Or they're orphans. They're both orphans now. Yeah. yeah. That, that bridge, bridge looks, looks so Good. I really wish. You know, I I wish I wish that they, like when when we when we talked to more like, some time there. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Like we 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 talked to the guys uh, who who are writing the new movie, and they were like, "What do you guys want to see in the new movie?" And you know, I I said, you know what I want to see is Kirk on the bridge. You know, I want to see him actually being a captain and everything like that. And I know that I'm not the only person who's saying that, but you know. Like looking at that bridge, I mean, can you imagine how awesome it would be to just see a, a movie like Wrath of Khan, where they're just on that bridge the whole time? That'd be amazing. Oh, well. great! So that's the the movie, and uh, we're into the credits now, which is a pretty awesome credit sequence. Yeah, I'm I'm gl- very much like the the first movie's credits. Yes, it is. But in 3D this time, if you were so lucky. <laughs> yes, it was. So okay, well, or in 16 by nine, if you were so lucky. Well, uh, one one six six, one six six. Anyway. <laughs> no, I mean right now it's oh, 16. Oh, oh by yes, nine. yes, you're right, you're right. Right now, there's too many aspect ratios for this movie. There's like 15 of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Well, what? Okay, so you guys saw you guys saw it in, in IMAX. You said right with the 3D and right. everything like that. Uh, what what did you guys think about that um, experience? You know, I I have a, my own philosophies about the IMAX and the 3D thing. I think you know, it, I've never really seen it used to great effect, except occasionally. I, I thought like uh, How to Train Your Dragon, for example, used 3D effects. The first one, 
uh, very successfully and emotionally. It, it, it was inherent to the story, and the it wasn't about the cool dragon flight, uh, you know, at you or the spear coming at you. It, it, it was, you know, they were using it to create when you know when when the ashes are falling at the end, and and and, and Hiccup has lost his leg. I mean, it, that it, that it, that it's used for that purpose, and I. You know, so if it's just sort of gimmicky and tricky and that sort of thing, I'm I'm just really glad that he didn't film it in 3D, but rather that it was converted because this way you didn't get that sort of like, you know, the Yogi Bear movie, which I saw with our son when it came out, you know, where there's whole sequences <laughs> created because it's in 3D, you know what I mean? Uh, rather than it being, uh, you know, uh, organic to the story. So if it's if it's if it's the 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 spears in this film are organic, so when they fly at you, they're they're, they're appropriate and they're really cool. So as long as it's organic to the story, um, it's great. And it, it it was it was wonderful to see it that big, you know, uh, and uh, and to experience it at that scale. What about you, Drew? Yeah, I. I've always wanted to see the Enterprise, any Enterprise in 3D. So, so seeing this one and, you know, it getting blown up and all the debris and stuff, I think it did enhance, it, it did enhance particular scenes for me. Uh, but yes, it, it's nice that those scenes weren't, you know, like, well, it's going to be in 3D, you know, let's, let's have it, you know, let's shoot it so that all the pieces are coming at you. The pieces are coming at you because that's what they needed in that scene. And, um, I like things. I like if something's going to be in 3D, I, I like them to be native 3D, you know, like shot in 3D, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm not going out of my way to see movies anymore that were converted. But, uh, you know, if you're planning for it, I like 3D. But the 3D in this uh, did work, even though it was a conversion. Yeah, I'm really conflicted on the 3D in this movie. I think that it was decent. Um and I've been trying to, you know, like my, my philosophy is always like, I'll see it however the director wants you to see it. You know, if someone is violently opposed to the 3D in a movie, then I'm going to be like, okay, then probably not. Like Man of Steel, you know, he's pretty much gone on record and said like, I don't, I don't watch movies in 3D. But, and, and with this one, it was weird because, you know, JJ was like that. He's like, you guys converted to 3D and I'm going to make my movie in 2D and then whatever, you know, as long as the 2D version exists, I'm okay with there being a 3D version. But then after getting into the process, he's like, you know, the 3D is kind of cool. But I still think, <laughs> like, like reading a bunch of stuff and everything, I still think that he probably prefers the 2D version. Um to me, the IMAX was, was kind of a big deal, though. You know, that, I think, is really cool. Um, and uh, I'm glad that, that they got to do that. I'm, I'm glad that he's doing that with Episode 7. I, I just hope that we get a few um, film prints for that one. Uh, although I'm guessing we're probably not. But you never know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, seeing it on just this massive massive screen i actually was fortunate enough to see it at the bfi in london which is like the second biggest imax screen in the world or something like that and uh that was just like amazing you know and um yeah i don't know i, I wish that they would have released it in 2d imax but that didn't really happen but i don't know i mean you know you you hear about that that imax 
Star Trek movie that they they were doing um, back in the '90s, and like I always thought that would have been so cool, and it never happened. And it's like now, twenty years later, or whatever, we have it. You know, that's that's awesome. I like that. It'll be interesting to see how this new movie looks, since they are sort of going in a different direction. At least technically, you know, it's going to be shot digitally, and they've got you know a different cinematographer, Claudio Miranda, who's known for shooting things in native 3D. I'm wondering if they are going to shoot it in 3D, which would be cool. Hmm. We shall see. See, Especially even more justification. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I really want it to Flying be mission through space. space and everything. Yeah, it seems like it would make it easier too because you're just like rendering things. It's almost like animation, you know. And you might get something more along the lines of how to train your dragon than, you know, a conversion. Mm-hmm. So, John, any final thoughts? Maybe the aliens will be dragons. Maybe. Ooh. I really enjoyed the film. I I uh, I, I think it uh, successfully continues and it expands. Um, the universe a little bit. I think the next one's going to expand it even more. You know, as a as somebody who really admires, uh, you know, the Wrath of Khan uh, for for many different reasons, uh, and certainly not unique in that opinion. You know, there the it was it, it says a lot that they kind of tried to go back and and give us some flavor of that. I think it acknowledges the, the greatness of the of that film and the acting and the writing and all of the, everything in, in Wrath of Khan. Um, you know, I, I just, you know, there's so few of these films we're going to get, although I'm hopeful that it, it, they'll do a TV show and that it'll be set in this universe and then they may be on a different ship or, or something like that. But, uh, you know, I, I want to see more of this universe and I, I'd like to see these characters grow a little bit. And, and uh, so I'm, I think we're going to get that in the next one. It certainly sounds like they're going in that direction. So I'm very excited about the, about the possibilities. And I, and I think they did a very good job with this. There's, there's a lot to admire in this film, I think. What about you, Drew? Yeah, I, I like this movie. I think it's, I think it's fun. Um, there are parts I don't, you know, really like uh, the, the parts that I mentioned during the commentary. <laughs> but, but other than that, it's, uh, it's fun and I think for for all the people who are, who are giving giving these movies crap, sure they're not exactly you know the original series. They're not uh, they don't follow exactly the the tenets of the original series, but they're getting people in the door, and I think that's important. I, I've said it before, but I feel like Star Trek wouldn't be on Netflix if it weren't for these movies. I don't think that we'd have Next Generation on Blu-ray if it wasn't for these movies. I feel that. These movies, just by their existence and people going to see them, is preserving the originals for us. And and if that's the only thing it does, then it's succeeded. If you go to a convention these days, you see such a different audience. You know, bigger audiences, more diverse audiences in terms of age. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think it has brought a lot of people to Star Trek who never would have um, come to Star Trek before um, or not discovered it. And I think that, you know, it's, 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 it's bleeding out to the whole franchise uh, in a positive way. Yeah, I, I think that this is, you know, by no means a perfect movie, but I do think it's a very good movie. I, you know, it was my favorite movie of last year. 
J.J. Abrams, I think, is is a very, very skilled director, and I I liked the writing as well. You know, there were obviously problems with it, and, you know, some of the, the, the stuff with, with the Wrath of Khan references or whatever, you know, may have been questionable. Like, the, the only real big problem that I have with it is Kirk dying and then coming back to life. I think that that's kind of weak. But... On the whole, I mean, like, I like the fact that this has, you know, sort of like a um, a social message, which you know, a lot of people criticize the last one for lacking. I do think that the action set pieces are, are very well done. And um, I think it's it's a really fun ride. So, yeah, thumbs up for me. <laughs> so, so John, uh, you got anything going on in the in the near future or anything that uh, that you have anywhere on the Internet? whatever a uh, couple things yeah uh thanks for asking um yeah in uh october 29th uh depending on when this will air <laughs> i don't know if it'll air before that um we're my wife and i are going to be giving a presentation free to the community um in libertyville illinois um at 6 30 on october 29th at the cook memorial library if people just go to the website cook lib dot uh, org and um, you can register it's a free event and it's all about the amazing life of Ricardo Montalban uh, from the from his childhood all the way through uh, to his work with uh, with uh, Nosotros and the Ricardo Montalban Foundation and and uh, and when we lost him in uh, 2009 so, and his legacy after that and um, you know plenty of Star Trek in there of course uh, including some rare images thanks to to the permissions we have from Nicholas Meyer, and, and, and we really appreciate that, and and even some great uh, commentary that we are able to share from uh, different uh, directors and actors and people who worked with uh, with Ricardo Montalban, who who talked with us for the during our research. So it's a really wonderful look at um, his life, and it's an amazing life. It's he's he's, he's so much more than than I think what we may know him as just in one role or another role, you know. Um, as a person, he's an amazing person. And then, um, we're really happy. We're going to be giving four presentations, um, to the San Francisco, uh, creation Star Trek convention. So we're going to be able to go out that direction and, uh, share, um, four different talks with, uh, with fans there. So if people are interested in, uh, the, that creation convention, that's just at creation, E-N-T, uh, com, And, um, we're really fun, including, we're going to do a whole big thing on, the lost scenes of Star Trek's two, four, and six. Uh, we're going to be doing a look at the toys of uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the research we've been doing about the making of the Wrath of Khan and show off uh, about a hundred rare images and some not seen before. Um, and um, so it should be really fun, uh, a really fun time. Excellent. Cool. It does sounds awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, I know that we don't have any more commentaries to do, but I'm sure that uh, we can get you back on to talk about something maybe non-con related in the future, which would be great. So that'd be awesome. Thank you yeah, very we'll much. We'll get for together. Me. Appreciate it. Thanks for everybody for listening to uh, to my thoughts on the film and and what and and, uh, and our debates too. So thank you. Yes. Thanks for coming on. That was fun recording with John. It always is. We'll have him back for, for something else. We'll, we'll think of something. But uh, that's not the only thing that we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. 
Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Because we're basically pitching a, a story arc. Right. Like like we're Babylon 5, and we've got this five-year arc. Yeah. But we're going to have a three-year plus maybe the cartoons plus the movies arc. Earl Grey. Billy has 25 self-stealing <laughs> temples, and he needs to trade with a non-Federation species using a different currency. What does Billy do? The orb. They've already been kind of to that next step. I mean, he massages her all the time and well, he knows helps her that, out of the tub. Again. He knows that she has rashes on her thighs. Yeah, our, so. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, so... To the journey! You know, talk about a, a heavy-handed message. It, like, literally, on your back. It, like, literally, on your back. Like, I want you to feel the weight. You know, like, this <laughs> Like this is the kind of non-subtlety that makes it fun. Warp 5. The fact of the matter is, Bakula is playing this character just as he should. It's true that Archer seems a bit uneasy, lacking in confidence. But he's the first human captain to see these strange new worlds. The ready room. I haven't gotten to the point in my research where I'm I'm that caught up. I mean, I, I'm very much stuck right in season one of Next Gen and kind of have That's blinders kind of on everything else right now. Yeah, boy, tell me about it. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And we have kind of reached a milestone here, a little earlier than you might think we would have reached that milestone. This is the final episode of Star Trek uh, for which we have a writing credit given to Gene Roddenberry. Commentary, Trek stars. And he wanted it the first part to be called Becoming Houdini and the second part to be called Being Houdini. It should have been called Houdini Begins. Yes. And Houdini Rises. Yes. Melodic Treks. At only 22 years of age, he conducted the Munich Symphony Orchestra using 110 pieces, a 60-piece choir, and a 30-piece children's choir. Sometimes you need the children to get them high notes. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out those shows and get in on the daily Trek talk. You'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, the Windows Podcast Directory for Xbox and Zune, or you can stream from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash podcast to get all the links. Let's tell everybody where they can contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on today's show. They can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send a show and choose Standard Orbit. That'll come to both of us by email. You can also use the tab on the left-hand column of any page to send us a voicemail using webcam's microphone. And you can talk to us and other listeners in our new Facebook group, the Babel Conference Trek FM's Listeners Group. In social media, you'll find our Facebook page at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm. Mike, where can people find you out of orbit? Uh, you can find me right here on Trek FM doing commentary Trek stars uh, with uh, my friend Max. And you can also find uh, me on my own website, commentarytrackstars.com, doing commentary Trek stars off topic with Max and our friend Brandon. And you can find me on Twitter at mumbles3k. And you can find me on Twitter at 005, D-O-U-B-L-E-O-F-I-V-E, and on various other places around the network under that username. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring Standard Orbit to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible's a great way for you to read all the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible's the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World, Audible has something for everyone. 
Mike, what do you have for everyone? Well, I know we've talked about this before, but, you know, given today's subject, I figure we might as well mention the Star Trek Into Darkness uh, Star Trek movie novelization. Uh, it was written by Alan Dean Foster, and it's narrated by Alice Eve. It's unabridged, almost nine hours long. Um, and here's the description. Pioneering director J.J. Abrams has delivered an explosive action thriller that takes Star Trek into darkness. When the crew of the Enterprise is called back home, they find an unstoppable force of terror from within their own organization has detonated the fleet and everything it stands for, <laughs> leaving our world in a state of crisis. With a personal score to settle, Captain Kirk leads a manhunt to a war zone world to capture a one-man weapon of mass destruction. As our hero heroes are propelled into an epic chess game of life, life and death, love will be challenged, friendships will be torn apart, and sacrifices must be made for the only family Kirk has left, his crew. I love how none of, like, 90% of that is unaccurate misleading at best yes yes it is <laughs> but it's still awesome yes the best description of anything <laughs> and you can get the book for free uh since you listen to standard orbit that's right as a trek fm listener you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great audible is so give it a try today catch up on all those classic star trek books you've yet to read and that latest novel from your favorite author as well just go to audibletrial.com slash trek fm and sign up today again that's audibletrial.com slash trek fm and we thank audible for supporting standard orbit and trek fm and lastly there's another way you can keep us in orbit and that's by supporting us on patreon if you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, you'll find a list of donation levels where you can get things like exclusive digital goodies, early access to episodes, access to our project manager, and even be listed as an associate producer on our show. You'll find out where the donations can go, things like covering the monthly cost of hosting and distribution, hiring an editor for our shows, and upgrading our equipment. Again, you'll find all that on patreon.com slash trekfm, so check it out. Well, that's the last commentary, but... It certainly won't be the last commentary. I'm sure we'll, we'll have guests to talk about other things. Hey, maybe it won't be the last commentary. Did you see that uh, thing that came out over the weekend with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch? The video of him playing Smaug? I just watched that before we started recording. Well, there was that, but there was another thing where he was on a talk show, and the guy asked him, uh, I think, what, Graham Norton? Is that the dude's name? Okay, yeah, the British and, guy. Yeah, and he said, like, hey... Um, are you going to be in the new Star Trek movie? And he said, no comment. No. And then and then he asked him about Star Wars, and he said, no comment. And he's like, no, no, of course I'm not going to be in Star Wars. And if you put that together with what Damon Lindelof said on the red carpet of uh, In the Darkness, when someone said, hey, is Benedict Cumberbatch going to be in the next movie? And Lindelof was like, well, look, no spoilers or anything, but if he survives this movie... He's so good that it would be crazy for us not to use him again. So putting those together, I'm going to say my prediction is that Khan will be in Star Trek 13. All right. Well, in a few years, maybe we'll have commentary four. <laughs> maybe. Yes. All right. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. Have a good week and keep on trekking is the will of Landry. Mr. Chekhov, take us out of orbit ahead 
Walk factor one. I said.